What's happening, everyone? Welcome to the Paranormals. I'm Johnny Monoxide, and tonight I am joined by Reinhardt. What's going on? Not much. And also joining me this evening down in the dungeon, taking notes, Grognak. What up? Hello, hello. Oh, you got the connection thing going on tonight. Is it is it stormy out where you're at? Is that what's going on? It's like incredibly windy. Ah. For some reason, the wind messes with the with the Wi-Fi. It blows the Wi-Fi away. <laughs> yeah, it must be blowing around all the satellites. Yes. This balloons. It's balloons, you guys. It's not satellites. It's balloons. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's Friday. Today's Friday. What's today's date? What's today's Friday the 3rd? Uh, February 3rd. Friday, February 3rd. Yeah, and uh, we'll, we'll probably talk about this on Tuesday. Uh, but the balloon over Montana. We always talk about... <laughs> I always talk about moons over Miami, which is uh, like a, a, a Denny's meal. Moons over Miami, right? Yeah, but yeah. Mo- moons over Montana. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it's you know it's all that's Montana. all that has been on the Tennessee news today is is that balloon could Dude, fly over Tennessee, and I'm just thinking hmm, more like what are they going to see? Well, uh, Dogman, Oak Ridge, what else? Chinese spy balloon. Anyway, we don't have time to get into that. We have, we have a, um, excuse me, good Lord, I had a hiccup. We have a great show for you tonight. We have a wonderful returning guest, which we'll get to in just a minute. Any business we got to take care of? Anything? I can't think of anything. I don't think so. Everything was covered on Nationalist Acquirer. Um, we have the new cover out. We're expecting some new music for next week. Yep. Oh, yep. Yep. Other than that. No. All right. Well, we are going to get right into it then. We have the author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, one Mr. Gary Wayne, back with us again. He's going to talk about his new book. It's coming out soon. Uh, He's just finished it, but also we have a lot of other stuff to talk about. So we're going to jump right into it with Gary Wayne. Welcome back to the show, Mr. Gary Wayne. Thanks for coming back. Well, thank you for inviting me and looking forward to the conversation. And hopefully we'll be discussing a few things that will raise a few eyebrows because that's kind of what we're here to do. And and in so doing, maybe connect a few dots and have encourage people to look a little deeper into things because that's kind of really what it's all about. Absolutely. We are basically, I'm sure you've seen the meme of Charlie Day and the Pepe Sylvia Right with the, the, the he's like trying to do all the strings to the connections and stuff, and his both of his eyebrows are clearly at the top of his head. Our eyebrows are always raised, and we are always connecting dots. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and it's it's harder to know now more than ever than uh, you know we're connecting the right dots. There's so many fake ones being pushed in there. <laughs> oh, it's really really hard with uh, what's going on in the mainstream media. You know, they're the ones that seem to be spreading most of the. Uh, conspiracy theories or illegitimate stories or non-fact-based stories, whatever you want to do it. And the people that were accused of being 
spreading conspiracy theories are proving to be right most of the time. So things are kind of inverted and a little bit uh, bizarre world out there. But it sort of reflects, I think, maybe the times that we're in to a certain degree and a little bit maybe like 1984 in terms of what was said would be coming about in terms of the propaganda that's in the state media. So, But it's why we need to get information out there that people can rely on and that they can verify themselves. And if they, we can help them do that, then they can sort through some of the things that are going on. Well, yes, definitely. Sorting through, sifting through the piles and piles of fake stuff out there, uh, whether they be videos or news articles or um, even social articles. I mean, everybody, everybody's an expert nowadays, right? And that's who we have to trust are these e experts instead of yourself and your gut and your own intuition. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's a lot of experts that have proven not to be experts. That's for darn sure. Man, I, um, well, so make even yourself in, an expert. <laughs> even in the the conspiracy realm of things, it has now grown its own sort of mainstream media situation, right? Even in the conspiracy realm, you've got guys who come out swinging as so called experts, right? And and yep. really, what they're what they're doing is propagating. Um, you want to call it well poisoning or or whatever uh things that just completely they make the rest of these topics sometimes whatever they may be in this realm right uh, they make them seem disingenuous or crazy um and that's what they're there to do so it makes it even harder to sift through Oh, it's yeah. I mean, just just to throw a random example out there and not to pick on any persuasion or belief or anything like that. But you have the lawyers for Hunter Biden coming out that are whining to have the DOJ and looking at suing people for um, putting out the personal information of Hunter Biden, but then denying that they're saying that that's the legitimate um, computer. It's like. You're, you're you're not really being consistent with what you're saying. So what's the truth there? And I know there's a legal play probably to come in behind with that, but it's just like that's the way things get presented is not very logical. And people are expected to believe it because the mainstream media just says it so. So we're expected to believe it. Trouble is, is there accuracy rate has been atrocious over the last 10 years and getting oh. worse as, as, as they go. Absolutely. Um, how, how I have taken to the belief that all of our news has been AI created by chat GPT or whatever it's called for like the past 10 years. Um, well, it seems, seems something like that. Um, it, it may be that they're that advanced or they just like to put out emails or whatever, but they use all the same talking points. Mm -hmm. They use all the same words. You know, if you were to go around and you've probably seen, I know some of the talk shows have put out some of the blurbs where they're doing the mainstream media and they're saying exactly the same thing on every channel on, you know, about the same topic. And that's, that's quite regular in, in mm -hmm. Canada. The uh, mainstream news, they, they're they just vassals for CBS or NBC or CNN, New York Times, New York Post, LA Times. They just repeat whatever is reported down there. They don't verify. They just, you know, it's like they're going to, they, they've got central sources for disinformation and then they've got all of these satellites for misinformation. Yep. Misinformation, which, um, <clears throat> you know, how that's the, it's like a conservative meme though, that Obama uh, signed the legislation that allowed the news to tell lies. 
I mean, <laughs> implying. I hadn't heard. Im- I hadn't, hadn't heard, heard that one. Oh no. man, that's a. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a big. That's like a Q meme, or like a pre Q meme. But um, yeah, you know, about- I, I, you know, I remember there was uh, some talk and discussions that maybe there should be a review of how the media operates and different views as to should they all be 50-50 in what they're doing or should there just be some sort of arbitrary decision who can be on and who can't be on, but nothing really came of that. That was just, you know, the usual talk that's out there to get people riled up. Mm-hmm. But in these days, you never know when they actually go from saying things like, you know, natural gas is a huge problem to saying, let's take your stoves out if we can. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so let me see. You can't I just have wanted eggs. to cook on my gas stove. Right. You can't have <laughs> eggs. You can't have gas grills. You can't have what else can't you have? I mean, like they don't want you to have any food, but you can have crickets. Oh yeah. It's chitin. Gotta got gotta have the bugs. So yes, that you, uh, and <laughs> and I know I mean I had to do the whole it's real thing, but have you seen Mrs. Schwab's New World Order cookbook yet? I have not, but I imagine it's got all sorts of variations of seaweed and um, bugs bugs in it. it and who knows, stuff. they may even do a, a mesh that they're going to sell off as, we'll give you these little tablets and meals that's called Soylent Green. Mm. And, uh, you know, after we get you hooked on all of these processed insects and uh, seaweed and then replace it with the real ingredients we want you eating. And for people who aren't familiar with soy, Soylent Green, I'm probably aging myself. But it's a, <laughs> <laughs> a lot Charleston. of people, a lot of people who listen to our show will will understand the Soylent Green meme because we we bring it up on on occasion. But um, awesome. yes, this book is actually <laughs> you can actually purchase this on Amazon. It's like 20, 20 bucks. It's in stock right I'm, now. Wow. I'm looking at it right now. Yep. Yeah, Miss, me, Mrs. Schwab's New World Order Cookbook: Insect yes, yes. Recipes Inspired by the World Economic Forum. Yes, yep. and the actual Amazon description says, "Welcome to the New World Order." of insect cooking. Mrs. Schwab's cookbook is filled with delicious and unique recipes that will surely delight your taste buds. From spicy popcorn cicadas to sweet 3B salads. Now, it reads, this reads like a joke, but you can actually purchase it. I kind of want to do it. Yeah, welcome to the new world dystopia that they're promising. And it's not that, you know, some of the bugs don't taste fine. It's just that uh, I might do it for a cultural thing, and I have. Sure, um, I have too. Right. Yep. Same here. I do not want it for my mainstay food, and I don't want it showing up like it is on ingredients mm-hmm. of things like in chocolate and salad dressings and all sorts of other things where they're starting to put those things in it. And the sort of the uh, superficial thing on it is is saying, well, we just can't control how many insects might get into our grain or whatever that they're making. And so we have to put that in as part of the ingredients. And I'm going, but you never say how much. Right. Well, here's the other thing is if they're they're sneaking it in now and we're finding out that they're sneaking it in, how long have they been sneaking it in with under our nose? Well, right. It's it's like the the old adage with military technology, right? The cell phone and the internet and things like whatever comes out in the public has already been known to the military industrial complex for you know a couple of decades at least. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like exactly you know, like the Star Trek the Star Trek thing where uh, apparently Gene Roddenberry was a prognosticator of Apple products. Right. Everything everything they had from the 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 watch to the tricorder to the yep. FaceTime, all those things. These are all 
those are all Apple products, but this was the late 60s, early 70s, <clears throat> Excuse me, yeah. early 70s that Star Trek yeah. came out with this stuff. So like, eh, just, just you know, strange how they do that stuff. But um, yeah, they've, they've been threatening us to eat the bugs and live in the pod with the crazy bald guy <laughs> who has a very German accent, dresses like <laughs> Dieter from Sprockets. Um, yeah. I don't think, I mean, nobody here, nobody here in this, no, nobody on this call thinks that Klaus Schwab runs the world, right? He's not. No. No. He is. No. He is we know his name. Definitely a straw man put up there. Um, he's, you know, but he's also the guy running the show where these people do, that do run the world. These these world leaders do get up there. Somebody like Trudeau, these uh, Tony Blair, all these people, the former and current world leaders get up there and they say these crazy things about what they want to do and the things that they're going to do in their countries and then they go back and do it. They actually do. Well, it. It's, you know, when they meet in Switzerland at, with, you know, the Davos meeting, that's where the marching orders go out. It used to be just people in business and well-connected people that were, would go there. But mm-hmm. now you have all sorts of leaders of the world participating. And they're sure. taking sort of the, they may not be taking the marching orders, but they're basically putting their weight behind what they're going to put their weight behind in, the, in their own countries. And in the fall, you know, for the first time we had the G20 and the B20 and the B20 is the Davos group. And they were meeting together to, so that they could, you know, do a doubling down and get the new reset going um, and to get digital passports re-emplaced, you know, all around the world based on the Alibaba system and Apple products, um, based on the things that they learned with the problems with doing a passport uh, during the last pestilence. And so Mm -hmm. what they're doing is they may be not getting where they want to go in a hurry, but they're doing it continuously and they're marching in that direction and i know they're frustrated that they're not where they want to be yet today but they continue they're very resilient and again it's not that charles swab is uh you know the guy that's actually going to be the one that's going to transform the world as he talked about in october with the doubling down of, of, of the great reset he takes his marching orders. He's the face of the people in between. This is kind of like a builder's burgers meeting where you get Bill Gates and all those kinds of people going and they get their marching orders and they're the lower level. They're the newer money. They're the people that want to move up. The Davos Cruz, the Bilderbergers, the Club of Rome, um, and so many other groups, IMF, World Bank, they all answer into the Committee of 300. Mm-hmm. And that's the committee of 300 families. And right. so now you're starting to get a, a better sort of concept of what they're doing. So the families, as you go up that thalamic tree, they don't like to be all that visible. So if you see visible families like the Rothschilds, they're probably not part of their, the 300 or the 13. They may be close through intermarriage over hundreds of years, but they don't have that ancient pure genealogy it takes to be in the top in the top crew mm-hmm. well yeah at, at the end of the day it's all about bloodlines with these people it is and the genealogies to back it up and they like to take it even to another level in terms of what they call ennobling their bloodlines and that's ah. scioning or grafting in additional pure blood so that they can become more ennobled so 
when we look at history in terms of what that sort of represents, there's two families in the West that sort of stand out. And uh, they are the Stuarts um, with the Unicorn Dynasty and the Merovingians. Of course, the Stuarts have genealogies and bloodlines that go back into the Merovingians as well. But they were considered the most ennobled kingships of that period because of all the pureness of their bloodlines and then topped on by significant other pure bloodlines that sort of vaulted them sort of to the top of the hierarchy. Ah, yes. Yeah. The, right. Uh, the marrying in and the combining of bloodlines and stuff. And again, you said earlier, a few minutes earlier, that if you know their name, then they're obviously they're obviously not uh, that important. I mean, they're important, you know, like the Rothschilds are clearly important. Um, yeah. They're, yeah, they're they like, run, they run a stable of agents, right? They run yeah. the Rockefellers. They run the JP Morgans. They right. run so many different things. They're the base of banking outside the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, the top, they're like the to top, so. they're like the top assistants to the unnamed. Now, um, where would you put like, like the Pizor family? Um, I'm not sure who the Pizor family is. What nah. country do they come from? So, the Pizor family. This is this is something that came out of. Um, actually, I've got it right here. Funny enough, you mentioned that Johnny. That's sitting in my bookmarks from years ago, <laughs> and I was able to pull it up. Um, talking about not knowing the family name, the Pizors were actually the name that was dropped. In, and I know how this is going to sound to everybody listening, but this was early on in the Q stuff and uh, comes from a guy named Neon Revolt that I, I know who's a great guy. Um, I trust him. Um, legitimate researcher, fantastic researcher, has written Very a couple of guy. books. But yeah, the, um, the Pisors seem to have been from the Merovingian line. Right. Hmm. Uh, and, and from the research that has been uncovered the merovingians they seem at least to put themselves apart from let's say the 13 bloodlines that um uh, fritz springmeyer wrote about they seem to put themselves at the head of that 13 and these pisors are the latest incarnation okay and yeah they're pretty they're pretty unknown in the modern world yep um but they included they would include later on people that would come from the Vanderbilt line from uh Barbara Bush, I forget her uh her maiden name. Oh. Um but Well and, f- and most and most of those will take their genealogies back through to the Plantagenet. Um but again, those are sort of secondary. So the Plantagenet are a junior offshoot of the Anjou. Um, right. The, so, uh, yeah, I, I'll, 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 you've got my curiosity up to to dig in who the Pisos are, but I've not come across that name, and I'm not saying that I know all the original names of the mm. bloodlines because because I don't. Um, but they're not one that I've seen crop up. But as as we've been discussing, that may be an indication of actually how powerful they are. That's well, that's, that's the thing is I've heard I've heard the names mentioned a couple of times, and Reinhardt and I are actually 
you're usually the only other person I know that talks about him. So um, most people have never, never heard the name. Like, you know, almost everybody's, you know, obviously heard of the Rockefellers. Uh, most people have heard of the Rothschilds, whether it's, you know, oh, that's just a silly conspiracy or they, they have like some sort of, they know a conspiracy about the, about the Rothschilds. Um, the Vanderbilts, obviously, that's a big, a big name. Um, what was the other, the Stewarts? Now, yep. which, which Stewarts? We're talking like Martha? Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be, hey, why, why not, right? I mean, why don't they? Like, you've got, you know, you've got Schumers all over the place. You've got yeah. Schumers in Hollywood and Schumers in, yeah. in, in Washington. So the, so the Stuart line is, comes from the daughter of Robert the Bruce, who Robert the Bruce didn't have a child. And Robert the Bruce was the first king of Scotland, obviously. And he's the one who permitted the St. Clairs, who changed their name to the Sinclairs, um, to fund uh, the escaping Knights Templar after their fall in 1307. And the St. Clairs are the bloodlines of of uh, Norway, the bloodlines of the Swedes that go back to Odin. And they take the name um, St. Clair when they take Normandy in about 911 and take the name for the sake of settling, of the family settling there, uh, that would fit in better. And so that's the Rolo bloodline that goes back through through the uh, the Norse kings. And Sinclair is the uh, sort of Scottish transliteration, sin as in saint. And the St. Clair was, uh, there was a Henry St. Clair that was a battle partner of Hugh de Payon uh, at the time of the uh, Templar Crusade. So these, these are bloodlines and intermixing that go way, way back. So... What was interesting about the Stuart bloodline, though, is, and included in the Bruces, so not only did you have the Anjou bloodline intermixed in there that went back to the Merovingian bloodline, you had the Norse bloodlines, but you also had an intersection with that dynasty of the Tuatha de Danann that comes out of Ireland. Robert the Bruce's brother was actually king of Ireland before Robert the Bruce became king of Scotland. Uh, you have the Celtic uh Wales uh dynasty that had you know dates back to the Camelot dynasties of King Arthur and King Lug and Cling Lear and all of those bloodlines which are essentially connected to the Tuatha Dudanan of Ireland anyways but sort of a different sort of vein so it had all of these different kinds of bloodlines that were intersecting into it and it's all and that type of bloodline made the Merovingians so popular and powerful that the Catholic Church was afraid to take them on for, you know, many, many centuries. Well, in in regards to the Catholic Church, um, how how do they fit into all of this? Because and I know you've you've written quite a lot on the the black nobility, the black pope, um, these things, this kind of secret world underneath the public veneer of the Catholic Church, but throughout what most people call the dark ages, the middle ages up to the Renaissance period, there does appear to be this opposition from the Catholic church or from Catholic groups. Um, but then there seems to be a melding at a certain point. Yeah. And there's, I think there's been power plays that have gone through the uh, Catholic church over the millennia. So People might be familiar with a term called the anti-pope, mm-hmm. which can also mean replacement pope. And just as Francis is considered by definition an anti-pope because he became pope while Benedict was still alive. But the term anti-pope 
sort of derives from powerful princes who aren't happy with the direction of the Catholic Church. <laughs> you know, absolutely doing a coup, taking that pope off and installing their own for that um, you know, reign of however that pope would live for. And there's many, many instances of anti-popes being uh, set up that way. But the more refined way, but again, it doesn't always work the way they would like it to work, is that the black nobility, which is known for the black nobility and Rex Deus, or the kings of God of all of Europe, but also specifically black nobility of the Italian bloodlines, you have uh, a bloodline that is going to put their bloodlines into the leadership of the church because at the time of the rising of the church and really up till maybe a hundred years ago, the educate, educated class was the nobility class. And so they're the ones who became the high level priests and, and, and the popes for the most part. So you have families that are going to have what they have the Julia gens and the Claudio gens that go back to the original senators of, of uh, Rome that take their bloodlines back to Romulus Remus and the nobility class that was created from Romulus and Remus, who were the offspring of the gods, typical sort of Nephilim, Raphaim creation story. And so you have families like the Orsini's that would be very dominant in Italy with the black nobility and with the church. You've got the family of the the Borgia. I was just going to say the Borgia's isn't... Isn't the Caesar Borgia supposed to be the depiction of Jesus? Well, that's what they've done, yes. Right. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> they've certainly put their influence on that sort of uh, image. Yeah. And, you know, Borgia was also connected in with the uh, Montessa order and the Jesuits, mm-hmm. which is another. Oh, the Jesuits. Hole, but... What a surprise we'd, we'd be mentioning them this evening. Yeah, what a surprise. <laughs> and Very so, strange. And then you have a later group of black nobility that comes in about a thousand AD that are basically bloodlines out of the middle East. And these ones tend to move into places like uh, Venice would be one of the congregations. And one of the famous names out of that might be the, the Medici and the Medici through the banking and, and get involved with the banking in the church. Right. Mm. And, the Medici actually will fund one of their own black nobility as they're accepted into, even though they're sort of a rival, not as pure as the other gens groups. At least that's what the, at the Italian gens would would say, um, and get a pope uh, in within that family that's that's elected. But these are two different groups, and then you get the black nobility of the of these bankers that are going to be helpful with the Jesuits on the re-implementation of the Jesuits in the 1800s after they got out of control and went rogue and the royals of Europe all ganged up on the church and got rid of the Jesuits because they were going too much on their own agenda as part of, instead of working towards the, uh, the black nobility, greater Mm. black nobility of all of Europe, their, their complete agenda. So this is something I've never heard of the Jesuits getting basically ousted from the church. Can you expound on that a little more? Yeah. So in, in 1773, um, Pope, uh, Clement the 14th, he, uh, disbands the Jesuit order. And in 1814, you have 
as part of a reinstatement of of the Jesuit order. And then by 1860, Pope Leo XIII reinstates the Jesuits to, to the position that they had before the the uh, breaking up of the uh, of the Jesuits. And so they basically were assassinating too many people around the world the jesuits they were trying to assert themselves to the top of the secret society order and they they were absolutely out of control but the real money and the real bloodlines is you know comes from the royals and so you had a number of royals that ganged up on, on, on the Pope and ganged up on the Jesuits, and they were gone for a very long period of time. And they only start to make, the, make, make their reinstatement uh, with the start of the Mary apparitions. And once that starts to happen, if somebody understands that the Jesuits have a originating story in a merry apparition through Ignatius of Loyola, who becomes a soldier of Christ to change the church from the inside and to do it in a way that he's been educated in, in terms of the seven sacred sciences and the philosophy or the theology that comes from that. That's how they interpret the Bible. You start to understand the significance of all of that, and you get an interconnection with that startup with uh, a Borgia, Francis Borgia, who's going to fund Ignatius of Loyola, and then by 1565, he's going to become the first Grand Master. Uh, the he's the Grand Master of the Montessa Order, who took all of the inherited all of the Templar assets for the mm. King of Spain in uh, 1307, as it was created, and then down the road. Uh, Francis Borgia, grandson of one of the Borgia popes, is going to fund um, Ignatius of Loyola and sponsor him through his connections in the church to become an order. Um, that happens in starting in 1534 with them getting the, the papal bulls to become an official order to get a hold of the uh, they start to do the teaching within the church, get control of the education, control of the seminary schools. Mm -hmm. And then 1565, Francis Borgia becomes uh, the leader of the uh, Jesuit order. And then in 1572, Pope Gregory the Thirteenth grants the Jesuit order the rights to all of the banking of the Vatican. And then they move that to Switzerland, where the Knights of St. John accepted most of the wealth that was lost out of France, um, went to Switzerland that started the Swiss banking, which is why you have the white cross on the Swiss flag, because mm. that's the Knights of St. John, Knights of Malta, Hospitaller uh, cross. And so... Within these secret societies, and we we're talking about the Committee of 300 and the banking and things like that, that the Rothschilds answer into, you have now you, what you have with a greater sort of plan, you have the Rothschilds being the bank outside the church. They create the Jesuits to be the new Templars within the church because they wanted that type of organization back in the church to create the new Babylon, which was the Templar uh, agenda within within the church, but the Templars created banking, right? They were the mm -hmm. first modern bankers, so they wanted control of all of the banking, and the Vatican had probably one of the most powerful banks in the world, so to get that um, 
under control and then to match that up into Switzerland. And now the Rothschilds in the last, I don't know, 50 years or so have moved their center to Switzerland as well. So you have complete control by the black nobility, the Rex Deus of all the major banking in one place. Oh, yeah. One place. Oh, sorry, Johnny, go ahead. I was going to say, we did we did an episode on Switzerland a couple of years ago, and uh, that is definitely the epicenter of everything. Yeah, it, it, the epicenter of everything, which mysteriously is the most neutral country in the yes. entire world. Weird. Strange how, strange how it's like that. Um, never had a shot fired in anger on its on its land. It's, it's strange. But founded by mercenaries. Yes, but f- exactly. The the most strangely conundrum of a, of a, of a country. It is an oxymoron in and of itself. Like <laughs> It's the well, most that- peaceful place on earth where everybody owns an M16. <laughs> well, in that area too, Switzerland and southern France all around there was a haven for a lot of uh, uh, not black nobility necessarily, but a haven for uh, occult groups throughout, let's say, the Middle Ages and what we call the Dark Ages, taking taking refuge there uh, in defiance of the Catholic Church, supposed defiance at least, um, right? You have uh, Albigensian Gnostics that were down there, uh, Cathars, uh, those may be the same group, I'm, I can't remember. <laughs> Sister branches of the same Sister, region. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's transplanted... Bogomilism out of the Slavic area of uh, Bulgaria and greater regions. What, what did you say it was? Bogovism? That What's that? Bo- what did you call it? Bogle, B-O-G-A-L. Bogle, and what? Exa- what is that for people that like me that don't? Well, know? it's 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 Catharism. It's Elbigensian. It, okay. It's a conglomeration or emerging of Manichaeism, Paulinisms, and a few other that were persecuted by the the uh, Roman church that fled out of their range and they centered mm. themselves in, in the, the Bulgaria region wow. and be, you know, came reestablished. And then through uh, some of the powerful Royal families in Southwest France and Northern Spain, um, they reestablished uh, their uh, sort of a Western branch to that religion that we, that became known to us as Catharism and Elbigensianism. Okay. Well, Reinhardt, what were you saying that there's a lot of occult stuff going on in the mountains there in uh, in eastern France and, and southern Switzerland? Well, yeah, in, in southern France, Switzerland, or all around France, in that yeah. in that area, of course, in, in Switzerland, you've got CERN, CERN, yes. obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you have the, the Holy CIA, as it's been called before. Uh, CIA has their, probably their actual headquarters there. Oh, absolutely. I, if anybody, at, look, it's the Central Intelligence Agency. Langley is the center of nothing. Okay. Switzerland <laughs> is the that, center. That's of a everything. good point. Yes. They have an office in Langley. Stop it. Um, <laughs> they, they do. But yeah, any, I, I jokingly, I mean, it's not joking. It's true. But like it, any organization with the word world in its title or heading or somewhere around it is its headquarters is in Geneva. Yeah, we did. We did do a search on that, uh, Gary, when we were doing our episode on Switzerland, we started pulling up international organizations that were mm-hmm. actually based out of Switzerland. And it's a huge list. It's literally every one, every single international organization, every international foundation, yeah. every world, this world, that world Zionist yeah. council, the world council of churches. The What was it? The, the Boy Scouts wasn't it wasn't Boy Scouts. What was the one? No, it was. Well, I, w- I was going to say some other club. homosexual boys or- and girls organization. Club. Boys and Girls Club is there, yeah. right? 
Uh, Something like that. But it's like literally every, it's like, wow. In this tiny, tiny little place where apparently the part, that parking lot, holy cow, man. If, if they were to ever want to really do uh, a terrorism where it would like affect a whole lot of people at the top level, the parking lot of Geneva in Geneva somewhere, like there's a lot of important people parked there. You know what I mean? And that's when we get shut down. No, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And like, it starts after the Hospitaler set up in Switzerland yeah. in 1180. And then they're confirmed with papal bull and location and funding in 1192 by Celestine the third. So yeah. that's, so and, and you don't really, and you don't really hear anything about Switzerland or what, you know, any involvement in wars or banking or money or anything really before that. Mm-hmm. But right. then you have, but once that came about, now you have the, the Swiss guard, which guards the Vatican. Yeah. The Switzers. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Yep. Isn't there a tunnel that goes directly from the Vatican to, to Geneva to Reinhardt? Didn't we, didn't we go over Was that in the episode too? That is a possibility. Yeah, I'd say it's more than a possibility. Well, um, I, I think that now that um, the tu- don't even get me started on the tunneling thing, but you have you know Elon's boring company and these other companies have been doing this tunneling publicly for God knows how long. You know, um, who's to say what they've been doing for millennia beforehand? Yeah, I, I totally believe the tunnels theories. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know what's funny is we we hear so many times in this conspiracy realm the Templars are like the most popular subject right like mm-hmm. national the yep. movie national treasure with uh nicholas cage you know templars and freemasons and yep. and you know even rosicrucians even though so many people don't really know uh the history of of the rosicrucian group um you know they're they're very popular in all of this the jesuits obviously have become very popular in this realm of things but mm-hmm. a lot of people forget about groups like the hospitalers yep. um, or the teutonic order yep yeah because they're all sister groups they're right. formed at about the same time. They have the same organizational structure, and they're all made up of, you know, royals. So, you know, at the top levels, and they may have had servants and people that were working up the degree system in, in the ranks of mysticism, but they're essentially all doing a specific role and an agenda within you know, the creation of all of those types of groups, and they're all created in relatively the same time period and tons of other ones that were created as well. I mean, you know, you have like, like you know, I was talking about the Montessa order. I bet most people have never heard of them. Um, uh, and or the uh, Calatrava order, or I mean, there's just, I won't go through all of them, but they all had specific roles and functions and they intersect all all you know through different countries and hundreds of years and working for the same goals and you know so it's just it's just this this web of of secret societies that come out of the old royal masonic orders that you see uh in different formats after the fall of the Knights Templar to create all the ones that people know today, whether it's Freemasonry's Freemasonry or it's the Illuminati or it's the Rosicrucians um, and, and the Jesuits because the Jesuits are formed in the 1500s. So a lot of people like to raise the Jesuits to being 
at the highest level, but they probably report at, you know, in through a branch into the trunk to probably about the committee of 300 level uh, and into some specific Italian black nobility. I, I'd leave a little bit of room that they might branch into the uh, council of 33 um but they're not at the top of the pecking order those are all created groups with a specific goal and agenda mm-hmm. assigned to them yeah and there's there's some crossover between the groups too sometimes right did you have guys that yep. are in multiple orders yep yeah you know michael and, chertoff but, but, michael but chertoff not, is one but only in one direction ah. so to speak so if you understand that everything's done in the in the degree system, and mm. first level of the old system is third degree, or as it's known in the Scottish rate, 33rd degree, you can have Illuminati or Rosicrucian or the higher levels of the degrees in the pure blood lines that can be intersecting down into the lower ones. But you can't have a first degree free Freemasonry person reaching up into the higher orders because they're just not permitted there until they've earned their way up those those degrees right oh definitely most and, definitely um and the other thing i was gonna shoot what was i gonna ask um never mind go ahead reinhardt well i i may be taking it a different direction than than your question would have been johnny but i was gonna say in these groups just to not backtrack but just to kind of like fill in some of the origin here these groups are or at least at least from what you found and and you know what you believe uh, these groups are a continuation of what we had talked about in our first conversation last season of these ancient let's say the the snake brotherhoods the great white brotherhood of egypt uh babylonian occult yep. groups you know yep. these are continuations that are changing the public face for the era in which they're acting right yes and they get exported to europe as we understand it in the common organizational structure through the Knights Templar. But you had these knight orders there before, these bloodline royal orders that were there before. But it's after, and what happens with the Templars is they're going to bring back the assassin organization, organizational structure with them. And the Templars worked with the assassins, and the assassins were part of the Sufi branch of Islam that most people aren't familiar with, and they're like the mystical branch. So they'd be like a Gnostic Christian to Christians. It would be Kabbalism to the monastic version of ancient Judaism. They are the same sort of ideology and the religion of the royals out of the Middle East. In all the countries around the world have, in with these ancient cultures, they have these ancient uh, mystical secret societies and China is, was absolutely filled with them and they're still around today. Uh, so when we look at what happens is, is after the fall of the Knights Templar, you get the decentralizing so they can't be taken down as easily with one central organization. And that's when you get all of those other ones, but there's a hierarchy to it and they call it a thalamic tree. And that comes out of Rabelais writings and it's an ancient sort of term and, you get two different types of these thalamic trees that are visible in the world. One would be like a genealogical tree, um, and it's like an elm tree, which is a, a very important tree for sacrifices and rituals in um, polytheism. Even back in into the Bible, the elm tree with some of those 
passages about the rituals that are done amongst the groves, you get the insertion of that of that elm tree. Uh, oak trees are also popular, but elm has a more significant, and it's more of that sort of umbrella tree and a little bit more branchier. So when you see that imagery on family genealogies, that's the tree that they're showing there. But the the other one is like the cedar of Lebanon, and it's a evergreen tree representing immortality. And you've got these great giant trees, but you've got these branches that stream downwards from the trunk. And so in the Thelemic tree ideology is, is, and in the world tree, because they're talking about the same concept, and it has the roots that go down into Hades or Sheol um, or the other world or Anwim or the netherworld or all the different names that that location has. Um, and that's where they get their power from. That's where the roots come from. So the roots is in the genealogical tree is, is from the godfathers that created them and from the power of them through uh, the evergreen tree into their hierarchical organization. And so their godfathers are the fallen angels who produced the original Nephilim and their home, of course, is in the other world. And that's their heaven. And this world tree, you know, touches heaven on the other end. So it you know, uh, it's a complete sort of nexus point between three different dimensions you could you could talk about in in, the, in those sort of terms. And so you have Freemasonry at, is at, at the lowest level on that Thelemic tree, and then they'll be responsible for their agenda and organizations that are at their level and lower. So you might see lower level secret societies where they're represented by Freemasons, and um, you would also have as part of their agenda they tend to have focused more on uh the military and on politics it says you know you know had a lot of freemason presidents down through through the years above that you, you have the illuminati and and the illuminati is focusing on aspects of world government and the destruction of christianity and so they would have groups funneling in they'd have branches and within those branches you have a hierarchy as well that comes back into the main part of the branch and then into the trunk so you've got that descending hierarchy above that the Illuminati is the rosicrucians that's the nexus point between the lower levels rising up and uh, the purebloods that are populating the top half of, of the Rosicrucians. And originally, the Rosicrucians were made up of the Invisible 33, uh, the Rosy Cross Order at the splitting of the cutting of the elm in 1188 after the Templars lost Jerusalem and they lost control of their main agenda was um and main mission when they were created uh, in the First Crusade to protect Jerusalem and they failed in that and so there was they felt the upper order uh, of the Templar order thought the junior order had lost their way and they split and that's why they didn't defend them in 1307 uh, when the Catholic Church and King Philip of France um just just you know took the you know disassembled the the the, the Templar order and so the invisible 33 actually went back to the Catholic Church in 1317 to try and get the Templars reinstated, but they didn't like what the Pope was saying that he would do to make that happen. He said, yes, you can have the Templars, but 
you're not going to have your 33 members on there. We're going to put our own on there. And so the visible 33 said no, and they went their own way as the Rosie cross order. And you see them becoming visible um, even before you get sort of the superficial introduction. So let's say in 1323, you have Robert the Bruce who welcomed in some of the Templar adepts after the fall uh, in 1307, he welcomes some of those adepts in and the, he's going to help the Sinclair sponsor the creation of Freemasonry. And that happens in 1317, where you get the adepts running Freemasonry from the Templars and with the sponsorship of the Sinclairs. But in 1323, they create another order for the Rosy Cross. That's really the first visible showing after the 1317 invisible ones sort of separate. And then a little bit later on, you get them working with Ordo Draconis to put uh, their bloodline kings back on the thrones of Europe because they believe the Catholic Church has been pushing them off the thrones. And uh, it's also called the Sarkhani Rond. And then you get Rosicrucians that start to show up sort of more visibly down the road. But at this point, you get people like Da Vinci as being shown as sort of being part of the grand masters of this descending organization and other elites. So what's happened is you've seen that Invisible 33 create more groups. So underneath them, they created the Committee of 300 and then the Rosicrucian Orders. And then you have the top order at that Thelomic tree as, as the family of 13. And within those top orders of the Committee of 300, Council of 33 and the 13 families, they're populated with all sorts of royal Masonic orders as it fits, whether they're a junior level or a more senior level. Some of the more better understood Mas uh, royal Masonic groups might be the... Uh, the order of the of the seraphim that is the norse uh order uh and then you've got the uh, golden fleece order of the habsburg lorraine bourbon family who has currently has the king of jerusalem title um as being probably two of the more famous of those royal masonic orders wow <laughs> i wow i don't even know what to say i hope i hope somebody was taking notes <laughs> well, they, I got, sorry, I got on a bit of a roll. Oh no, Gary! This is why this <laughs> no. is, I, I love listening to you for this this exact reason. I can we can have you, and I can have you on my show, and I can listen to you. <laughs> that was kind of that was kind of the whole point of this exercise, Gary. Just so you know, <laughs> the whole Golden Fleece Order and uh, and the Order of the Seraphim too. Those show up on when you see like modern royals, right? Yeah. Quote royals. Mm -hmm. um, whether they are or not, I'm I'm not sure how the how the bloodlines fit into these royals nowadays because they seem to have very little power, seem to, uh, in their respective countries. But you see these when when they're showing up at a wedding or at an official event, and they have all these medals. Yeah, um, these royals that have never served a day in the military ever have an entire chest full of medals and crests and ribbons and. Yep. Yep, and they and what they're doing is those are like their coat of arms. Mm -hmm. It's like the banner they used to put. It represents to people in the higher level of the bloodlines exactly who they are and where they fit. And everything in there is taciturn communication as to their genealogies and their godfathers. Mm. Yeah, and their godfathers are almost. It seems to sometimes they're almost more important than their actual fathers. Yes, absolutely. 
um, it, because it's got that imagery. So when I say Godfather, I'm taking them back to the angelic uh, uh, patriarchs, so right. or the fallen angels. So yeah, that's why that Godfather takes on you know a, a standard sort of importance, but really an even more important aspect of it. And give you an idea, uh, you know how they still relish in this and understand that the money and the power that they have isn't seen. So the money of the world, when you look at money, let's say like um, Bill Gates has uh, and people like that, that's a small piece of the real wealth. It's what they call the visible wealth, not the actual wealth. And when I started doing my research um, and got to that point in the secret societies, and I wanted to try and get some information on who really has all the money because we get all of these people that are basically new money and we're told they're the richest people in the world. Well, you know, at that time, that was, in, I think, 2001, 2002, when I started to get some information on it, they said, well, you're never going to get a complete tally on it because it's off the books. So the only money that you see is what they call money that's on the books. Mm-hmm. And the money that's off the books at that time was estimated in the European families to be three to 500 trillion. So <laughs> you can only imagine what it be, would be today. Um, you can imagine how much investments have gone up. Let's and and rank that to the you know in the stock market to what they would have done with that money uh, to increase that value of that wealth. Uh, you get an understanding that they have so much power that you just don't see because mm-hmm. they're working behind the scenes. And so you have the f- current king of Spain, uh, King Philippe, who's son of Juan Carlos, who's of the Bourbon family, that's connected into Charles V in terms of the bloodlines that was connected into uh, Francis Borgia, who was with the Montessa order, uh, and was the order that had controlled the Templar monies and estates in Spain and was certified through a papal bull through that, through their connections, and then became a general in the Jesuit order. Mm-hmm. You have this bloodline that is sort of intermixed or scioned, as we were talking about before, but they inherited that from the Habsburg-Lorraine bloodline. And this is part of the Golden Fleece sort of Masonic secret society, a Royal Masonic society. And his title that he inherited from his father, King Philip, from Juan Carlos, from the Habsburg-Lorraine dynasty, from King René and the Lorraine kings in um, the Lorraine region, who received that from the Anjou of and 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 the Pan de Bouillon and Anjou of of Lorraine are a sister branch to the Anjou of Hungary. That's where this title was before. Um, and it goes back to the crowning of King Baldwin II in 1118 in the small priory on the Rock of Sion as the King of Jerusalem uh, title. And these are Anjou uh, bloodlines that go back to the Merovingians that we talked about earlier. That's the King of Jerusalem title that he has. Now, there's two rival Anjou bloodlines and I and put this, I read about this in the book that will be coming out that talks about the rivalries and how that rivalries of the three branches come out that all claim the King of Jerusalem title. This one that uh, the Bourbon family is sort of the one at the top that's, that claims and seems to have from a consensus 
perspective from from their culture the 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 rights to the by right of inheritance uh the most legitimate right to the king of jerusalem title this is the title they want to use and pass on to one of their bloodline people that would be crowned king of jerusalem in jerusalem that would be their world messiah Hmm. so now hold on who holds the title of king of jerusalem right now uh, that would be, uh, I'm sorry, uh, King uh, Philip of okay. France. So, but you also have, as I say, two other, uh, you have the, the King of Jerusalem title still carried by uh, von Habsburg today. He's still making a claim to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have the Anjou of Naples, Sicily, that is still making a claim for it as well. And Naples, Sicilies would be the the old... Uh, not the old, but the uh, the Italian kingship. That's kind of where they were located. And uh. Johnny, do you think you have a claim to that title? The uh, maybe, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> just just wondering there. Yeah, yeah no. I'm gonna I'm gonna say no. We we come from rather rather poor stock. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There's there's so, no there's no Merovingians in my family. <laughs> Yeah. So, the, so another sign of that bloodline is, is like the double cross of Lorraine, and that double cross has, uh, you know, it, it's been traveling with that title pretty much since its implementation, and uh, it it represents two bloodlines. Mm. So, which it, it represents now? That's the 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 what is it? The um, you just said it, the Habsburg. Right, am I, am I well? The, the Habsburg Lorraine, Lorraine, was that's the one, an intermarriage, uh, you know, that mm-hmm. came about through um, one of the princes of Lorraine uh, marrying, a, uh, you know, that had the rights to the title, intermarrying with uh, the the Habsburg. So that's where that transferred over. Um, but I mean, these are basically Anjou bloodlines that they're talking about, and that that House of Anjou uh, would come from Hungary originally, correct? Well, it it had that was a branch. Of, okay, right. So the original Anjou would come out of uh, out of Sicily, I believe. Uh, but the Anjou is thought to be trans. All of the royals are transplanted bloodlines out of the Middle East. So Anjou is is thought to have hold uh, a bloodline that goes back to the Anu or the Anunnaki, or as uh, you know, fallen angels, you know, uh, that come from this, you know, that produce giants in in the Mesopotamia region. Mm. All tying back into prehistory, right? Yeah, yep. right. Well, um, and they keep and they keep those genealogies. Oh, absolutely, they do. They 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 can probably. They, I mean, they can probably rattle them off themselves further back than you. Sure, can, they Gary. do. Well, and 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 they show it to you in their coat of arms, mm-hmm. uh, right? Exactly. That language, is right. That is their that is their twenty three and me right there. Yeah, and you know, you and people can Google this. There's articles written on it. You know, Prince Charles says he descends back to Vlad the Impaler of mm-hmm. the Ordo Draconis, and he would have genealogies to back that up. And how that sort of comes about is through the German bloodline, through the Hanovers, because the Windsors changed their name to the Windsors from Hanover in World War One because they wanted to sort of disassociate from the Germans that they were fighting. 
And, what? you know, for obvious reasons, right? And the Hanovers were a branch scioning of bloodlines that came out of the Transylvania region that included, you know, Vlad the Impaler, who took their bloodlines back to the Scythians and the Astra. Uh, I uh, can't quite come up with the uh, the tribe that was one of the offshoots of Hercules, and Hercules was the son of Zeus. Mm. I always thought they were the Saxe-Coburg Gothas. That's what Alex Jones tells us. Yeah, that's yeah, that, that's but, part of it. That's yep, part of that's it too. Part of it. Okay, but and that's part of that Hanover dynasty. Ah. What's interesting about the Hanover dynasty is they have actually have two unicorns on their coat of arms versus the one of the Stuarts and one that, mm. you know, Prince Charles would uh, be utilizing now. Interesting. Two unicorns, the official animal of Scotland. Um, <laughs> so it's an assertion of, of, of dominance. Of the Hanovers. Uh, yeah, Scotland, Hanover. and they usually have a lion and a unicorn. Right. That's so Both not uh, Aboriginal of England or Scotland. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, the unicorn is Aboriginal of nowhere, right? Like, isn't 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 a unicorn just a, a misrepresentation of the Latin for a single horned rhinoceros? Yeah, 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 it is. And unicorn, you know, it's a word that is used as propaganda to hide sort of their truth in 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 plain sight. Mm-hmm. So. You know, in the King James Bible, you have unicorn translated in there many times. And the actual word is Hebrew rem for a wild bull. It has nothing to do with a horse. So in polytheist mythology, the actual unicorn as a physical animal being was a horse before the flood. And you can pick get pictures sort of of the cosmology of putting it the pieces together. It was like a chimera type of creation, but mm-hmm. horse being sort of centrally themed and had that single horn. And it was a horse that the giants rode as kings and into battle. So typically white with some of the other colors and chimera type aspects interwoven into it. And then after the flood, the giants... Um, somehow created another great steed, not with a horn, but typically after the flood. So if you Google like Riders of the Shea with a Tuatha Dé Danann, you'll see these uh, noble elves, these white elves, these Tuatha Dé Danann, these giants post-Diluvian who have horses that have these helmets on with a gold horn to represent that type of of, uh, horn that was before the flood and that it was uh, they were riding white horses, which are, for the most part, the, the the color of that type of horse that they would want to ride. And so the typical mythos of the unicorn is this, this terrific, playful little thing that was playing so much and frolicking around so much that it missed getting on the ark. That's the typical fairy tale. Right. If it was. <laughs> Just <laughs> so happened, yeah. It's like the whole, like, close, the dinosaurs right? were busy too, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Oops. if 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 it wasn't actually a being, and I don't dispute that it was it was an animal, a chimera, because we know that comes out of Greek mythology. We know that they did these types of things based on that. If that's actually factual, and it probably is, to at least to some degree, mm-hmm. then that it would not have been a pure 
purely created animal because it's chimera, as just as we understand it today with what science is doing. So it wouldn't have been called to the ark because it was a corrupted animal. Oh, so right. that's why it doesn't show up after the flood. And but that's not the that's not the end of their they have layers and layers oh, and man. layers of these meanings. So <laughs> When you get into Greek mythology, because it portrays it the best, is you have like the chariot of Zeus, the chariot of Apollo, and several other gods that are being uh, pulled by white horses. These are the chariots of the gods, as we would understand it in the ancient alien mythos, but that's the actual depiction. But in many of the older depictions, these were horses that had a horn on it, a single horn. And... These are representing beings that are pulling the chariot. Well, that's got a very interesting sort of counterfeiting or copying or equivalency to what's being talked about in the Bible. And what's interesting about that is, is you have in Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 3, and Ezekiel 10, you have the vision of Ezekiel where he sees God's chariot. Right. And with the wheels are wheels within wheels, and it's where God sits and it's being pulled. And we're told in the book of Psalms that it's the cherubim who pull the chariot. And so these are a allegory of a cherubim. Hmm. In, in, like a in, like in, a corrupted version of yeah. what's been created. Hmm. Now What's really interesting about the cherubim is is they're, they're four-winged uh, angels that cover the throne right. of God, right? And they have four faces, just like the Ophanim are the ones that are in the wheels, but it's a slightly different being because one of those four faces on the Ophanim, and where that word comes from is out of the book of Enoch, but you get there biblically because the wheel where it's talking about the beings in the wheel is Ophan, and the I am is the male plural, just as cherubim, seraphim, Raphaim, Nephilim, you get that sort of consistency. And so we don't get Ophanim in the Bible, but we do get the word in Hebrew where you derive that from. And you've got the cherubim that are that are that are pulling the 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 chariot in 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 Ezekiel's vision there. And what's interesting about the four faces of the cherubim is you have the face of a man, you have the face of a bull, you have the face of a bird, whether it's raven, eagle, falcon, owl, whichever one you want, and you have the face of a lion. And when they took their form, a cherubim, when it took its form in the earth, it took one of those faces. So you would have like a sphinx, which may have a, have a face of a man or a face of a lion, depending on how it's being um, depicted over in Assyria and Syria, you have the carobs that would have a lot of times the face of a bull. You have gargoyles that have kind of faces of birds. Um, and where you really get a good understanding of what I'm talking about is with the Anunnaki Ooh. fallen angels. You have yes. these depictions of the Anunnaki with wings. One has a bird face and one has a human face. Mm -hmm. So if they reproduced in that physical form and created that physical body, the Oikotarian that holds their, um, holds their spirit, the soul and the body, then they would have created DNA in that body. And that was passed on with the human females and the giants would look like them. 
So now when you start to see like a lion on a coat of arms, you might be thinking Trubum or a lion god like Nergal or Mahis, but typically that might be a representation of a Trubum. And when you have the unicorn, that's again a depiction of a Trubum. So they're actually saying from two different Trubum. Now, if it was a dragon on there which is on let's say on the prince of wales it has part mm-hmm. of that as part of the scioning in a red dragon to be specific right. that would be a seraphim right these are watcher angels and the mm. the angels who created the giants were called watchers so these are just i guess it'd be anthropomorphized but in reverse making them animals <laughs> i guess right is it their yeah. animalization so, of of the angelic race, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And their offspring early on look just like their godfathers. So you get uh, kings that are depicted as serpents, right? Just as the gods are depicted as serpents, whether they're nagas, whether or not they're feathered serpents, whether or not um, they are... Uh, gods like Anki or Enlil or Tiamat or the Greek gods are originally um, depicted as serpent. It's it's common sort of imagery all along, and all all throughout prehistory, and their offspring at that governing level look just like them. But you also get bird nephilim around the world. So some right. of the Anunnaki, uh, which is the sort of the best representation, you might. Um, envision as being the same gods in Southeast Asia and China and Japan called the Tengu. And the Tengu produced these bird giants and Mm -hmm. priests. And they're the ones who taught taught martial arts and weaponry and war to to humans. And you can Google that, T-E-N-G-U. You have... You have in the Kishamaya, for example, as, as another one called the Zibalba, and they had like owl faces. And these were the demigods created from the gods in, in the in the Popol Vuh. And there was a branch of them called the Kamazots, C-A-M-A-Z-O-T-Z. You can Google that. You Google that, you're going to get the Batman outfit. And <laughs> that was called the House of Bat in the Zabalba giants. Um, so you have lions that are depicted on reliefs all over the world that were warriors. They were a strong warrior class in Egypt. They were a strong warrior class in, in Mesopotamia. And in biblically, you get uh, these lion men of Moab and the lion-like men of Gad, and you get Arioch, which was a king of one of the giant groups in the War of Giants in Genesis 14, and Arioch means lion-like. So, and these, this is in Mesopotamia, uh, where the Anunnaki, you know, were the watchers of, of, of prehistory, and then again after the flood, and created, I think, dark-haired giants uh, with dark hair, big curly beards uh, when they use their human face as opposed to the blonde-haired and red-haired ones that were part of the Datanu of the Ugaritic text or the Tuatha Dodanan and the Horim and the Anakim and ones that had that type of hair color. Mm. Uh, and the Scythians would be in there as well. And so I think it was a dark-haired, curly, curly black, black-bearded cherubim that would have produced, let's say, uh, a giant like Gilgamesh, because that's how he is portrayed. Right, he's portrayed with like big wavy beard and the 
Yeah. Big, yeah. The typical Greek beard. It's nothing wrong with that. Mine's my, as mine grows out, it gets more wavy. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you see, I mean, take kind of taking it all back to like what you had said earlier, John, I know you were half joking, but it's, it really is like a 23 and me of these, these families. Oh, They're right. showing yeah, was, you. I mean, a little joking, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely there. There. If you know how to read it, you know, for those who yeah. have eyes to see or whatever, people look at them, oh, they have those fake military medals. No, those aren't military medals. Those are those, that's their genealogy. Yeah. Right. And heraldry, vexillology, you know, yeah. flags, uh, yeah. they have their own language. And this language yeah. is, is very ancient because they've always used symbols, even to the first creation of writing, yeah. it seems. And on uh, Prince Charles, uh, the unicorn is actually tied down with a gold chain, yeah. like it's being imprisoned. And, you know, it has sort of that imagery of those angels that were chained in the book of Revelation that will be released to dry up the Euphrates River to permit Armageddon. It's like really freaky stuff when you start to get into their actual meanings of, of their heraldry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, wow, these people really are as crazy as they say they are. I mean, you look at you look at all the occult rituals that they do. We've said this since the very first season of this show, 8 seasons now. Um you don't have to believe this stuff. But the people in charge, they they do. They absolutely well, do. You, and you, that's, you know, a lot of people ask me, "Do you believe all of this stuff?" And I said, "That's not the point." Right? It's the, the point is is they believe it. And what you really need to be aware of is what they're doing with that belief. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. The one, but yeah, you don't have to believe, you know, that they, you know, they believe in like, you know, uh, worshiping Moloch or whoever it is that they're worshiping now or Baphomet or whatever ancient God, Enki, whatever, whoever it is that they're, they're doing these ceremonies and rituals and whatever for, you don't have to believe it. But the people that actually run the world, not the not not the, the Klaus Schwab guy, but the guys that are actually doing this stuff, they believe this. They absolutely do. Yeah. Well, let's connect a few dots on that Baphomet. Sure. Actually, real quick, in. Gary, actually, can yep. we leave it there for a second, take a quick sure. break, and then yep. we'll pick this up after the break. We have um I don't I didn't pick a song, Reinhardt. Did you pick any music this week? I did not pick a song. All right. It'll be a surprise. It'll be a surprise to all of us. We're gonna play a song. Uh we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back.
All right, everybody, we are back. This is still the Paranormies. I'm still Johnny here with Reinhardt, Grognak, and Mr. Gary Wayne. Uh, before the break, we were going to connect the dots with uh, Baphomet. And what are we connecting those to, Gary? Well, it's a nice place to sort of work back and forth because it's one of those, like, where does Baphomet come from? It's called, like, the head of God, and people know that the Templars were worshiping it. And then we start to see some images of it. It's basically a goat god. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of really sort of a cult that the Templars at the adept level were worshiping this head of a goat god, um, Baphomet. But it's an order of gods, order of fallen angels. And so you have other gods that are in this order so you might have um you know you have several that are in greek mythology pan would be you know the most common one and pan of arcadia uh and pan also has a temple that was built at mount Hermon, where the oath was sworn to create giants mm. and you have bacchus of the uh roman pantheon that's a, a goat god. A fawn or a faunus is a goat god as well, as you take that back. And then you have Cernunos of the Celtic pantheon. And these are also nature gods, um, as well as goat gods. And you have a specific god in the Etruscan pantheon, which is basically a branch of those Indo, four groups of Indo-Aryans after the floods. After the flood, they had a god called Cern, C-E-R-N. And it's interconnected into, into the Greek pantheon where they inherited their pantheon from the Scythians. Hmm. And, uh, you, and that's got an interesting connection to what's going on at CERN, obviously. Like, is yeah, that really say, an acronym or is that actually a name of a god? Probably uh, the goat god because they like to dress up into, into goat gods, right? Right. And in the Bible, you get these satyr gods. These are called devils in a couple locations in the Old Testament uh, and devil gods. And they are a hairy, shaggy goat or a hairy shaggy goat god as they're defined and they're and these are being worshipped in in those aspects and you actually get the word satyr showing up with things like dragons and owls and all sorts of uh occultic type of fallen angelic beings in isaiah 13 and isaiah 34 and that word watcher that we talked about earlier uh, it shows up in the Bible in Daniel four, four times. And it goes back to the Hebrew word, Ayer, basically transliterated I-Y-R. And what's interesting about the word satir, as you take that back to Hebrew, it's sa'ir. So S-A with a, like an apostrophe, and then you get that word for watcher. And so, as I defined satire, it was called a hairy uh, goat god, but yet it's um, got that word watcher that's in it. And so, the word sa is a short form for a couple other words in Hebrew that mean hairy and shaggy. So, these are hairy, <laughs> shaggy watchers, but they're not these seraphim angels or cherubim angels as watchers or ophanim weight angels or archangels these are degraded to look like 
um, a, a, a goat god. And these are the degraded forms of those fallen watchers uh, that they're worshiping. And what's interesting is you make that connection back to CERN and back to what they might be doing at CERN is one of the things, not everything, but one of the things that they would be doing is wanting to get into um, Hades, into Sheol, into the location of the abyss prison that's in another dimension to get out the, the gods that were locked in the abyss for creating the giants and all the things that they did against humanity, the crimes against humanity and the crimes against creation, both before and after the flood. So you have two sets of creations and two sets of punishments, which is why I think we see that goat god show up in starting in Greek history, but after the flood and with the offspring gods. I think those are the ones that were degraded, but they had not become impassioned yet, but they were doing that out of spite. And the thing that we know about these pan gods is they're very sexually motivated to say say the least and these are the gods that they're trying to get out using the technology at cern as well as reaching into another dimension to get something that is really very important to them as well but not as it's associated with the satyrs hmm okay so so baphomet is actually not just a god Basically. It would be Azazel. It would be because Azazel. That's who, they, that's, okay. that's who they worship. And Azazel shows up in the Bible in, Le- in Leviticus 16 as the scapegoat. Mm-hmm. And in the book of Enoch, he's the one who is um, all the sins of the antediluvian world is put on him uh, because he's the leader of the of the second tier, you know, the ones that report to Satan above. Part of the Satans, as the Book of Enoch would talk about, mm. and that's the second goat that is uh, sacrificed on the Day of Atonement in in Israelic uh, feasts. And so, we're not told who that goat is sacrificed for, but that's the word Azazel for scapegoat. Well, and in in Enoch too, or is it in Jubilees? He's specifically mentioned as well as teaching uh, the the forging of weapons and armor and the teaching yes. essentially of the art of warfare. Yes. The art of, of killing the, other men. Yeah. That's in the book of Enoch. Yeah. Um, so, and I, I would say that's a pretty important thing, Sure, but, and, but we see as well, these groups, these occult groups, whether from the top down, uh, how, how do they move? How do they play this chess game? It's always been through war, through conquering. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, because there's so many rival factions. They all want to be the family that's going to control the world. So it's all about power. Even though they directionally work together, there can still only be one at the end, as the old Highlander movies. Which, <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. That's, so well, that's, that, that's something Johnny and I have talked about a lot. We've all talked about it on this show, is is they, they may work together to a common goal, but they all secretly they all kind of side eye each other and kind of hate each other is they're yeah. still playing the game of thrones so right. to speak they are i mean even in the modern era we we saw that um and i'll give a couple of examples so 
you know, you have all of these powerful Western families that are in the time of World War One. So you've got the Czars in Russia, you got the Kaisers in Germany, and the Hanovers who changed their name to Windsors. You got the Habsburgs in Austria, and it's a basically a family civil war. And as the struggle goes on, you see a creation of something called social masonry from the Western European families, and they create communism, and they create communism to bring down um, the, uh, the the original czars of Kiev, the Putyanin bloodlines that are represent, were represented by the Romanovs as a branch intermarriage in about 1600s because the Moscow um, throne was a branch, was a Putyanin branch, from Kiev, and that's why you have Putin, who has a Vladimir the Great, was one of the great Russian branch czars that was part of the Putyanin line. The Romanovs are a scion bloodline, but an extension out of the Putyanin. So they create them to get rid of one of their pure blood rivals because they believe because the Russians weren't playing ball and they believed they had superior bloodlines to the Europeans. But did they stop there? No, they created national socialism to take care of communism and put that into Europe after the fall of the Kaisers to make sure the Kaisers don't come back into power. And you also have, after the fall of basically World War II, you have the fall of the Habsburgs. They're still kind of in power, but they're not really in the same sort of control. So you see this sort of continual elimination. But are they satisfied with that? Oh, no. They're going to create communism. And after creating communism, they send that to China to take down the Shah dynasty. And only now do you have a Shah bloodline guy back on the presidency in China. They've hmm. been trying to take their rivals out so the Western European bloodlines can dominate the New World Order. But we're seeing pushback now by some of the other bloodlines, and I would expect to see more bloodlines pop to the surface. Man, it's it's crazy how these bloodlines always always end up, you know, at the top in all these positions, and, and it's a very very small circle. Yeah. So if people think that. Uh, you know, Putin is going to stop with what he's doing. Mm. He's not because he believes he's part of the Putyanin bloodline. And Kiev is a holy city because that was the original place for the original Putyanin czars. So he wants to put together that old Russian empire and he's not ready to accept the Russian dominated new world order. They're not against the new world order. They just want a bigger place. And, and China feels the same way so they're going to be building their empires and pushing back well we see that too with this this whole ukraine russia conflict and and i think johnny i can speak for everybody on the show where we believe that there's no good side in this entire thing right i'm sorry say that again i said i i think i speak for everybody on the show when i say that there's no good side. Oh yeah, there is no in our there, in our view of this thing. Yeah, um, I don't I don't believe there's a good side at all on a, at that level. Right. So so could it be that and and we see that let's say the president of of Ukraine Zelensky is pushed in in all this mainstream media. He he tried to get you know a, a video put out at the FIFA World Cup and he was soundly denied, which I found hilarious. Um, you know, he's put out at the WEF. He's put out with Bill Gates and and all these people. So, is is there something to Zelensky 
do you, do you believe him to just be the the puppet that's being wielded by you know the the family that may still hold that area of of the Ukrainian territory or I mean yeah what do you uh, think there is there because that that area is clearly very important throughout history very very important and yeah the Ukraine is just being used as a proxy to you know, try and uh, get rid of Putin some way, somehow. And so Zelensky isn't the one that we have to worry about. Maybe even Putin may not be. He may, we don't know if, if the West is successful and, and they get Putin replaced. We don't know who's going to replace him. That will maybe even be more bolder um, in in their position in terms of rebuilding the the, the old Russo um Empire. So, but I wouldn't be as much concerned about Zelensky's. I don't see anything there. But we, what we do know is Putin. Um, his uh, family name comes out of nowhere in about 1850, hmm. and in Kiev is where his grandfather comes from. And out of nowhere in about 1850, some people say grand uh, great grandfather. There's two different stories out there but it's pretty much identical there's just is there one extra generation in there and in the tradition of the kievan czars uh, is and the putyanin family when they had a child out of wedlock they wouldn't give it the full blessing of the royal family and they wouldn't give it um the full name but they would give it part of the name and um that's where Putin is part of the Putyanin bloodline. And so mm. Putin's father moves from Kiev uh, just after World War I to St. Petersburg, where Putin is going to be born, and that's how he ends up back in, in Russia. So he's, if you look at what he's doing, he's put together the double eagle of the Anunnaki, who is representing that bloodline. And also, he's, as I mentioned, he's honored Vladimir the Great. He's bringing back all of the heraldry of, of the old Russian Empire. And so he's not going to destroy Kiev because he wants that likely as the capital city or a holy city of, of, of the empire that, that he's rebuilding. And so you have a taunting that's been going on of Putin beginning with the Obama um, presidency. And uh, you might say it might be as a reaction to what happened in the Bush's uh, uh, reign as well. But typically, I mean, they were going into Chechnya or Georgia, and it wasn't that all that big of a deal, at least as the West considered. But after Obama becomes elected, uh, I mean, he's doing all sorts of different things to try and bring Putin online, but he's getting turned down over and over and over and over. In the meantime, his vice president, who is now president, he starts talking as for leverage and with Putin face-to-face -face on this that they fully intend to bring the Ukraine into NATO, and this starts in about 2010, 2011. Putin's always had the red line. Ukraine does not come into NATO, and he keeps bringing it up over and over and over and over, and then he gets elected. And what the first, one of the first things that Biden does when he's, he's elected, 
he shuts down the Keystone Pipeline and he turns the U.S. into a net exporting nation that Trump put him into to a net importing. And you start to see oil prices start to rise. This funds, this makes it available for the Russians or for Putin in this case to fund his war into the Ukraine. And if we look back in history, if we look at back when Russia invaded Afghanistan, oil prices were high and shortages of oil were everywhere in the late 70s. Right. I remember those. The gas When they invaded Chechnya or Georgia, the prices were high. So they created the scenario for him to fund his war and they poked him in the eye saying, we're going to bring the Ukraine into NATO. And then they just basically kept poking him in the eye since he got in to saying, oh, we're going to put sanctions on you. We won't tell you what they are, but they'll be so terrible. You won't do it. And he's not sure what the Americans are going to do. He says, screw it. I got the money. They're going to do it. I'm going to take the Ukraine. And I'm not defending Putin in any way. I'm just sort of underscoring your point that this has been a rigged war. It mm. was, it's been, and if you look at how the left in particular looked at Russia throughout the Trump years, mm. they were, they were stoking for a fight all the way through. So this has been something that I think that's, that has been worked hard on from uh, the Europeans, but they use the U S as their lapdog. And you notice they don't step up to the plate very often. They just call in their lap dog. I guess more attack dog. Not U.S. wouldn't be a lap dog. They're an attack dog. <laughs> better, better analogy to go fight the war for them. I, you know, I'll I'll straight up disagree with you there, Gary. Nowadays we are a lap dog. No, <laughs> it's not curse dog. No, it's neither. Okay, as far as they're, the they're as far as the cat. military goes. Cat. Okay, they're a cat now. They identify as a cat. Oh, sorry, sorry. Dog. Yeah. Yes. It's the United States military. Would be the proper name. And did you just assume it's gender? (laughs) Jeez. What's wrong with you? That is a macro aggression. You will be set up under Article, I don't know, what's the, what is it? Article 86 is the bullshit one where they just make up whatever they want. Uh, Yeah, that's, that's what filled up my entire file in the NCIS file cabinet. Yeah. I forgot which one it was, which one it is, but it's like, it's is article 86. I think it is. Is it 86? I got it right. All right. I think it's 86 of the UCMJ. I I did. I I did. I I did go to captain's mast when I was in the Navy. So (laughs) I I did. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, look, things happened. It was a long time ago. I 100% of both my tests in boot camp. Okay. Gosh. All right. Um, (laughs) Anyways, but back to yes, let's get back to these bloodlines. Actually, man, um, you know, Gary, we haven't talked about your new book at all. You've been spending a lot of time on it, haven't you? I have. Yeah. I promise it's going to be a little smaller than the first book. I, Not a whole bunch. It'll be it's eighty four chapters. I've done a <laughs> proofread and I'm doing another small little edit. And uh it's not going to be redundant of the first book, but it is going to go into areas that I didn't cover. And nice. uh, it uh, it's going to be called The Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2. Oh. And it's uh, the subtitle is going to be How Understanding Prehistory and Raphaim Giants Helps to Explain End Time Prophecy. And so I link prehistory to prophecy sort of all the way through, and then I actually get into some end-time prophecy. But in there, I do this, uh, get into some things that are really kind of 
sort of pertinent to what we were talking about today. Like mm-hmm. when I follow the various lines of the of the Anjou and the split and the King of Jerusalem title, where we get into all the different kinds of the uh, angelic hierarchy, um, get into the the cherubim and the uh, unicorn and the uh, uh, you know imagery of that of both the animal and also for for the god and also understand that antichrist in the uh, book of daniel is the single horn that rises amongst the seven horns um, at the midpoint of the last seven years so um, and talk about how that unicorn was put into the bible to represent the bloodlines of the Stuarts in terms of how they saw themselves as a bloodline candidate for Antichrist. Hmm. All right. Well, it sounds like uh, you, you said it's 80, 84 chapters. Yep. 84 chapters, yep. just short. Well, how many chapters is Genesis 6? 98. 98. Okay. Yep, so yeah, 98. Just, I knew it was right 90 here. something. I didn't want to guess. Gary, um, please, please tell me the bibliography and endnotes are going to be just as long. Better. Oh, oh love yeah. it. I yes. love it. I have bought, I've spent more money on your end notes actually than, <laughs> than probably any other books in my life. Yeah. yeah so up, I've yeah. got a very large bibliography and the, within the end notes, I provide uh, uh, the sources of the sources. Ooh. Beautiful. Excellent. Yes. Can't um, wait till. Do you have a guesstimate as to when it's going to actually be on out for? Yeah. In the first six months, for sure. It. Uh, I have to get it off to the publishers. Uh, I want to get it off in the next couple of weeks. So I'm okay. working hard, hard to cram that. Awesome. In. And then it goes into, you know, the queue for editing and publishing. So mm. depending on how, what their timeline is. So I, I mean, I'd love to have it out by the end of March, but it, you know, depending on on what the uh, publisher wants to do with it. So, okay, right. Well, we are definitely looking forward to that, most certainly. Not like I don't have enough books to read. In my queue. <laughs> yeah, not like not like you and I don't have a backlog. I or anything. I have, yeah, we we went from uh, since all of us work out. Uh, we and saying to people, post physique is gay. Uh, we just tell people to post library. Like when they, people, that's the thing online, you know, somebody argues with you, they're like, shut up, nerd, post physique. And you're like, well, yeah, post your library, pal. I have shelves and shelves and sh- I have more, I probably have more books I haven't read than I have books that, no, it's getting, it's getting there, Reinhardt. It's getting there. Well, you know, and, being- and one thing that I like to have is because you, when you put something out, you have to be able to back it up, right? Exactly. So right. every, I either have an electronic copy of the book or a hard copy of the book. Um, and I like to have the hard copy, but some, you know, sometimes it's just too much money to go out and spend like, you know, $30,000 on a, like a series of books or something. Right. right? So you have to go electronic, but because, uh, you know, what I found is if I, you know, if I hadn't had it with, you know, contacting people and people contacting me is, is, well, I, you know, you're just making that up. Well, okay, here's the source and here's their source. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Having the sources of the source is, is really a, n- a nice feature there too. Um, yeah. but, but definitely, um, being able to, to look something up yourself. Um, I have a, I have acquiring a massive PDF library, but yeah, the books that that we like to read tend to be very old 
and yeah. those tend to be quite expensive. expensive. Yeah, very expensive. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Expensive. Johnny, Johnny, what was one you looked up recently? It was like $1,500 for a hard yeah. copy. I forgot what it was. There's, there's um, so many of them. Uh, I would, yeah, oops. like looking for Christmas presents for guys. We always just buy, we just like send books back and forth. I'm like, whoa, yeah. what about this one? How much is, holy cow, that's a $16,000 book. Yeah. You're like, yeah, yeah. like I, I love, I love dog pod. But I'm not going to spend twelve hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah, right. We we yeah. We'll, we'll see what's on sale on Amazon. I'm I'm not going to pay no. rent just to uh, right. Just send him a book. No, I mean no, I don't even if, do that for myself anymore. Like I I've for right. myself. I no I have no. If my PDF library was like valued at actual, Ooh. you know, if, yeah, I have some books there. But like that's what we do. I have terabytes of books. Um, but it's it's yeah. nice to be able to 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 read a book like like your Gen Six and then go to the back and see the bibliography and yeah. go to see what your source is and with this one you're gonna have your sources source for something that's really cool yeah. actually yeah that is- yeah because I, I wanted to get as old as we could get with this information nice. so th- th- this book has a little bit different agenda it's a it's signed heavily for Christians as to what's actually in the Bible and then how I match that up with with some other sources and uh, but everything is centered around what's what's written in the Bible and again most so many Christians don't even know how much is written in the Bible let alone the other stuff but you know like to be able to bring in like the Ugaritic texts um, which is just a beautiful sort of uh, parallel accounting of, of a lot of things that's written in the Old Testament books. It's just awesome. So, and if I'm going into, I'm trying to take the uh, the giants' names back to their original name uh, in terms of the tribes that they they started, and you have to go through patrial places and um, patronymic gene- genealogies and. To, to do that, you really have to get into some old books and things like that. So, um, oh, man. yeah, so it's been, it's been, you know, a passion and, and an enjoyment to do, but boy, a lot of work. Let me tell you, Holy I, <laughs> I, I, you know, that, uh, that as far as like the Nephilim, the giants go and all that, that's, that's kind of been a bread and butter for me for a long time. And that's probably the number one frustration with anybody who gets involved with this stuff is the names tracing names and and bloodlines and families and stuff all the way back and everybody wants to know the origin um and i'm actually i'm looking at a book so i'm i'm i have most of my library in storage after leaving the military last year and uh but i took a few with me of course one was your book (laughs) and another was uh from the ashes of angels yeah andrew collins yep and that was one that I pulled from your bibliography. Fantastic yep. work yep. Um, from him. And just, yeah, just being able to get some of these sources, um, even from from somebody who just looks at these from an objective perspective, um, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily, as far as I know, Collins is not a Christian, um, an objective perspective and, and trying to really understand some of these concepts as they're understood by these ethnic groups. Um absolutely incredible so i'm i'm really looking forward to seeing uh where you've pulled from the ugaritic texts too are used by you know Derek gilbert and so many other authors um that uh, there there's so much wealth of knowledge in there that i mean you can you can call them corrupted sure um but man they really give us an insight into what those people actually believe the threshing floor yeah. rituals necromancy all this kind of stuff that yeah so many yeah. people don't know 
So these and are they're the, wanting to bring, the and they want to the, bring the baleen oh. back to create more giants, right? Because they have a fertility issue. <laughs> right. And what what was that, Johnny? <laughs> what what were the names of these texts again? The Ugaritic? Ugaritic texts. Yeah. Ugaritic. And these are from what time period and what people I've never heard. I've honestly never heard of this stuff. So, so. Well, the dating's a little bit in question, but uh, it ranges from about uh, 1200 BC to mm-hmm. uh, right back to the flood. And some people might say even before in terms, because it has a lot of before the flood uh, accounting in it as well. Okay. And these so, are, these are, tablets or scrolls or were these how were these found yeah they're they're tablets, tablets. and uh, the Ugarit is a, was was a city in northern israel in the sidon area just in from the coast mm-hmm. and it produced a bloodline of the raphaim um okay. and it had a council of the raphaim that included all sorts of different names and things of different giants and giant tribes and things like that um so there's different ones that you can get on it. One, you know, might be that it gives you the sort of chopped up version mm-hmm. and you got to try and fill in the blanks yourself, or you have the experts and all the different quotes and things where they show you what it was uh, inserted to sort of connect the words or the sentence and they show their sources and why and things like that and everything in between. So, and if you do get you know, anything on the Ugaritic text, also get the Ugaritic text on the Epic of Gilgamesh. Mm. It's unbelievable uh, to me, you know, when I found that there was a, several Sumerian varieties, but then there was one that was, it's a shorter version, I think, in the in the Ugarit, but it runs very, very close to um, what uh, the Sumerian ones do or the uh, Interesting. Uh, the stories about Idzubar. That uh, some people, some of the scholars think was Nimrod, but it's an identical accounting to the uh, Gilgamesh epic. Hmm. Well, there's, yeah, that's another, that's another thing that's throughout different histories is the same sort yeah. of story. Um, oh man, I just forgot my question again. I had another one um, before the Gilgamesh thing we were just talking about. Where were we? Uh, oh, now the Rephaim. Now, these are the children of the Anunnaki or they are the Anunnaki. This is, I was I'm confused by like what you would, what you called, Were these, or am I thinking of two completely different things? Nope. Nope. Okay. You are bang on. So one of the things I don't, re- I don't really cover in the first book, cause I didn't want to get down the rabbit hole because I, I wasn't sure how, how, you know, I was throwing so much information at people to begin with. And I thought, I don't want to get into that because that, can be a book in itself, as it mm. turns mm-hmm. out. <laughs> um, oh, and and in, and in the new book, I also cover off. I have several chapters on the Jesuits that I don't cover oh off in the first book because, again, I didn't want to get down that rabbit trail because there's so much confusion about book. who the Jesuits are and where they Another fit and things like that. I give you all the base too. organizations, but I don't tell you how they are formed and then what they did. Um, I do that in this book. So the Rephaim, uh, they are. Uh, you get the word Rephaim in Genesis 14 in the War of Giants. In mm-hmm. Genesis 15, amongst the mighty 10, as I would call them, because there's the mighty seven, plus there's the three KKK giants, the Kad- Kadmonim, the Kenazim, and the uh, Kenim, Kenites, Kadmonites, and um, Kenazites, by the way it might be translated in a Bible. Um 
And it's part of the land that is uh, is being given to Abraham that uh, the Raphaim are included in amongst those uh, those uh, giants uh, that are li- listed. And some of those are hybrid giants, which again is really gets into what uh, is in the, in the second book as well. So the interesting thing is is that the word Nephilim only shows up three times in the Old Testament. Uh, it's once in Genesis 6-4 for the giants that are created. Um, those are the antediluvian giants. And then shows up twice in Numbers 13-33 in the embellished or the evil report that the terrified scouts are saying to the people of Israel because they don't want to go into the land and fight these giants. So they say the the Anak or the Anakim, mm. and I tend to denote giants with the I am male plural. Um, the Anakim are these giants as they're described. And that word giant in that embellished part of the report is the word uh, Nephil or Nephilim. So twice it's used in Numbers 1333, but you can't use that as kind of accuracy because they're trying to scare the people. And the Anak aren't Nephilim. The Anak, the Anakim, as they're defined in Deuteronomy 2, along with the Emim and the Zamzuzim and the Horim um, and the Avim that are listed in there, that goes back to a word that's translated as giant in the King James Version Bible, but that's the word Rapha, and the I-M is the male plural. So now in that word Rapha, you have three words that come out. So you have two extension words. Rapha means to heal or to uh, be a doctor or to medicate. So in the Ugaritic text, you have the Raphaim being talked about as healers. Uh, That's the Rapiu or the Rapium. These are the same people after the flood. And you have the word 7496, which is Rapha again, which means a shade, a demon spirit, uh, a ghost-like bearing. That's the dead ones. That, and you have the Rapiu being described as those that, you know, after they die and they're going back and forth between the portals, um, that's those beings. Part of the same word, part of the same groups of people. And then 7497 is a tribe of giants, which are the kings that are in the Ugaritic text because the Raphaim were the kings. And so... The Anakim were part of the Raphaim, and there's many different kinds of Raphaim after the flood. And I named a few before. I won't go through all the different names, and there's mm-hmm. more than the obvious ones, which I'll also, I also cover off in the book. So these are part of these Raphaim are the Datanu that are in the council and the assembly at Mount Hermon of the giants. And you also have a council of gods at at Mount Hermon as well, Mount Saphon, as it's uh, called in, in the Ugaritic text, uh, where the Balim and his father El before, that's where they ruled from. And they give them the names of these gods. So we know it's the same gods and we know it's the same people. And they're the ones who created the Raphaim after the flood. So they're calling for Balim and Ashtaroth to come back because the Balim that create the post-Diluvian giants that are these other kind of giants. I'm not saying that some may not have survived, but this is part of the second incursion story. So the Datanu, which is part of that assembly of the gods, that is the Tuatha Dodanan, the Tuatha Dawin, the Tuatha Danu, as in the the... Anu, and also show a version, I do a little bit in the first book, but even more so in the second book, that there's a strong 
etymological connection to the Anakim, which are uh, the Anunnaki, as you take that word back to its 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 Semitic words and make the and you can find a pretty much a direct link that indicates they're the same type of being. I actually think though that most of the Mesopotamian giants are these dark-haired variety from the Cherubim, because the Anakim are blonde-haired, whom would, would produce the Amorites, uh, which are patriarchless in the Genesis uh, 10 Table of Nations in First Chronicles. Uh, you get nine names uh, of the Canaanites that don't have a patriarch. Um, and I will provide in the book who I think the uh, the Nephilim patriarch is taking that back patriarchally and pa- uh, patronymically, and uh, also to the angel or the fallen angel that goes back to 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 the Baalim. So you have uh, the Horim that are also part of this group, um, and they're red haired that are in the covenant land. So you got these different kinds of giants that are working. So your question was is. Are the Raphaim part of the Anunnaki? They're part of those four Indo-Aryan groups that show up after the flood that are the aboriginals that settle in all the lands, whether or not it's in Greece, which are dark-haired ones, in Anatolia, which have both dark-haired ones and the lighter-colored-haired ones, uh, blonde and, and, and red hair. It's the Scythians, and it's like the, uh, the Aryans that uh, create the first Persians in the Mesopotamia region and also settle into the Indus Valley. And so you get like the uh, the Persian kings that are in the Beast Empire of the Persians, the Achaemenids, they take their genealogies back to these dark-haired Nephilim or uh, Rephaim, but giants after the flood, and that those bloodlines go back to the Indus Valley. So, yes, I think they're part of the same groups, but I leave open that maybe the dark-haired ones might be survivors. And the reason why I say that is that you they, they seem to be a little bit larger. Like Gilgamesh, is, he is classified as, both in the Ugaritic and in the Mesopotamian text, he's, he's described as being 11 cubits tall. And he was the king of Uruk, and he's the offspring of Lugabanda, his father of king of Uruk, and a fertility goddess named Nin or Nin Sun, um, two different versions, but the same goddess. Um, and so he's definitely a Nephilim, and he's two-thirds god and one-third human. And 11 cubits as being a king at a royal cubit would be over 19 feet tall, and he's four cubits wide. And that would make him seven feet wide. So he is as he's as he's as as he is stout in his strength. And you hear, get this word stout in the Bible, and part of the description of the terrible ones um, who were thought to be. And, and as I write in the first book, um, uh, height to width ratio is generally thought to be for giants at a two to one ratio versus a three to one ratio for humans. So a lot wider, but bulked in muscle. So you can imagine this monster, and this is after the flood. Hmm. And he's, you know, people say, well, but Gilgamesh in the Book of Giants was before the flood. Well, typically, giants after the flood were named after giants before the flood. So we... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, we know Gilgamesh in the epic is from uh, after the flood because... He's listed in the in the king's list, which places him at sixth generation uh, and as king of Uruk after the flood. 
So, so he's built almost like a two-story house. Yeah, huge. But as wide as a dwarf. Let's say, imagine a a dwarf in like a fantasy world, right? They're always short and very wide. Yeah, very well built. Imagine yeah. him that well built, but almost the size of a two-story house. Yeah, that's that's abs- crazy. Absolutely yeah. insane. Absolute yeah. unit. <clears throat> yes. Now. If you take the, the, these are called the terrible ones. And uh, King Hababa, who is in the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, and he's the king of the cedar forest on Mount Hermon, um, he was appointed to do terrible things to humans. And you get these terrible ones that are talked about in the Bible. And that's the word arit or the retim, as you take that to the male plural. And they're described in Isaiah 25 as the strong ones. And that goes back to that word as and as as, which means stout, strong, powerful, muscled. And that's the root word for Azazel, who's the king of the abyss. He's a bad and Apollyon, the destroyer of the antediluvian world. Well, and it fits for one who would have taught men how to kill each other. Yeah. The art of war. Good Lord. That's right. <laughs> so They taught us everything. Though, King, right? Og, yeah. King Og, who's uh, Raphaim in the Bible, we don't get his height, we get his bed. So that was four cubits wide and nine cubits long. So he's not as big as uh oh, I thought it was bigger than I thought it was 12. No, it's somebody else. It's something else, 12 cubits. Yeah, so and that would be, and again, he's, king of Ashtaroth and Adrai, so he's going to be measured on a royal cubit, and Josephus says to measure these giants on a royal cubit, because that's how they were understood to be measured in, in his time, and that was 21 inches, so that bed would have been close to 16 feet long, and again, 7 feet wide, so he'd be maybe 13 to 14, maybe 15 feet tall at the outside, and he would have been 4, 5, or 6 feet wide to fit in, in the bed, right. and that's a big that man. bed was kept on display to remind future generations of the size of the giants that they fought against. Hmm. You may not like it, but this is the peak male form. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. There were bigger, there were bigger ones. So. Goodness. It, yeah. Johnny, now, they, isn't it, isn't it crazy? Like actually imagining what this would have been like. And the, and these are the people that, that were the, they're the baselines. We talked about heraldry and vexillology in the first hour and how people today, the bloodlines in the modern world come down from these families. These are the propagators of these families. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They were given, yes, they're the propagators. They uh, were given the divine right to rule and uh, passed on the divine right of inheritance as it gets passed down from the Baalim after the flood. They're the offspring gods who took over from the parent gods, I think as we talked about earlier mm-hmm. in the show, that uh, supply the that supplied the authority. And so, yeah, that's the genealogies that they're taking themselves back to. So one ought not to be surprised that unicorn is used in a number of verses in in um, association with Mount Hermon. Oh, there we go. Um, oh, I remember what I was going to ask you earlier. We were talking about um, Sumeria and the Anunnaki. Um, what is your official opinion on Zechariah Sitchin? Um, I think he's uh, obviously an intelligent 
um, articulate, intelligent uh, person. I think uh, his some of his translations are subjective. I think he had a preconceived idea to uh, on his on his translations. Um, so I mean, he 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 translated directly from the cuneiform tablets, uh, but other translators disagree on some of the biases in terms of how he did that translation. The essential story is the same. All they're doing in in the Sitchin one is they're just lowering these to you can make the case on his translation that they could be either superior gods or they could be aliens, right? Right. Um, and of course in the ancient alien mythos they've taken that and just ran with it. So Right. They took uh, his his translation of uh, was it Shar or Shem or whatever it was, Reinhardt? Uh, Shar, the unit of measurement, or what? No, what was it? They they Time. he mistranslated uh, spaceship, which is actually monument. Uh, yes, whatever whatever word that was, he has mistranslated. He uh, as he calls it, his word is spaceship or rocket or whatever he used, and the actual. Translation, which is general consensus by every Sumerian translator, is that the word was monument. So, that, yeah. like, yeah, like when you said that he may have had an agenda to his writings, I, I, I agree. I, I think he absolutely, yeah, did. yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I think the word the word used for that he used for spaceship, which others say is monument, and others can be described as a high place, a, a yeah. temple, or oh, a right. high place, a yeah. stargate, a portal, even, yeah. And yeah, that's, yeah that's, that's where a lot of things differ. Yeah, so I, yeah, right. Yeah, and typically at the high places, which is on mountains or in, in worship sites, were the location of the gods, mm-hmm. and that they would have had caves and portals associated with those mountains, as Mount Hermon has the gateway cave to Hades, or so in the Pan Temple located at. So, it's a matter of what kind of emphasis do you put on that special meaning, and also that. We know that these gods had the ability to use some sort of technology to fly in, right? And they can be depicted as the chariots, um, or they could be said, let's take that to a sort of a spaceship understanding. I mean, you could go in several different ways with that. But they had the ability to make that type of technology that's the but does that make them aliens or does that make them fallen angels? I, I lean that they were more powerful than advanced uh, spacemen. <laughs> I would I would say, um, you know, one thing that I would agree with, uh, do you know the name Timothy Alberino? Do you know who he is? Yep, I do. Yep. Yeah. Um, one thing Alberino made a great point on, and I, I disagree with him on a lot, but he made a good point that, you know, these things are extraterrestrial. They are alien to us um, by definition. Where I get off the train with him at a certain point is he he thinks the idea of, of, of chariots, period, uh, being used by these beings is completely ridiculous. That why would they use a chariot when they could use a, well, flying saucer, flying disc, or something like that. Yeah. Um, well, they could, they, well, they used both. Yeah, they they could sure, use both. Yeah. They, I mean, they, they would have the technology to make a chariot as great yeah. as a flying I have, saucer. I have both and, the vehicle. I have both like I have a, both a truck and a bicycle. 
Like, right. I mean? like, <laughs> like know, in a skateboard. That's a great point. Yeah. Yep. And, and in my biases, uh, as being a Christian, I look at the gods as being fallen angels who counterfeit everything. Mm. So right. they're going to want to counterfeit the throne of God. And in Ezekiel, we know there's an imagery of a vision that, you know, God has this, this movable throne as well. As that has a chariot to it. And so they would counterfeit that because they would have similar throne rooms and movable thrones, just as they have a council of gods that, in Psalms 82, that counterfeits the council of God that Satan wants to overthrow in Isaiah 14 and what Antichrist will want to do in, in the end time as, as they try and get into heaven to, to, to overthrow God. So, it makes sense that it would be both. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is I get asked occasionally, and it's such a good question, I think, is I get asked, do you think they're from different planets or from different dimensions? And I tend to think it's from different dimensions. Um, so when we look at a lot of things in the alien mythos, you have a lot of these spaceships coming out of the ocean and through portals. Mm-hmm. And because they kind of go sort of disappear into nowhere as well. And you get the same information in ancient fairy lore, which is part of the hierarchy of of the rebellious ones. And they have their own flying machines that come through fairy portals. And we have the Ugaritic text that's talking about the gods and the giants going back through portals. And we get uh, these passengers that are talked about in Ezekiel 39 um, that are the passengers or the travelers. And that's the Hebrew word abar to mean cross over. And it's associated with death in the book of Job. And these are the beings that have the ability to go from one dimension to another dimension. And if we look at where Hades or in the abyss is located, that's probably in the earth in another dimension. So there's a lot more things we have throughout our legacy in all cultures, all religions around the world that would indicate that these beings exist and they have always existed with us and they come through portals. There you go. I mean, the the portal thing has been seeded throughout. I mean, antiquity all the way up through uh, Stargate, right? Or one of our favorite yeah. shows. Yeah. Um, well, and, yeah, and we then do you have, look at listen. We do have you look a at that word Babel. Yeah, right. uh, we understand it as confusion of languages, but if we understand that this tower is talked about in Sumerian traditions, like at Eridu with Enver Akar. Um, that this is a common story, but it doesn't always mean, Babel doesn't always mean confusion of languages. In Akkadian, uh, you know, one of the peoples that Nimrod sponsored after staying in Sumer, or, uh, Shinar as it's transliterated in, in the Bible, you have uh, the word Babel as being Babalu, which is I-L-U, which is a transliteration for E-L or A-L. Uh, that means angel or a god in, in the Semitic languages and in Hebrew, and Bab being gateway. So was Nimrod actually trying to build a pyramid into the sky, or was he building something that had the ability to have a portal to go into heaven and defeat God? Um, one wonders about that translation in, as it comes out of Akkadian and its connection to what they're doing at CERN. And also understanding that Antichrist is going to storm heaven in the end time, as Revelation 12 and Daniel 8 talk about. Hmm. 
Yeah, like you mentioned, Johnny, Stargate, they've they've been telling us about this for a long time and giving us, I mean, throughout just about every episode, after it gets away from the cringy, hey, do you remember the movie? Yeah. Section. Oh, yeah. yeah, there's um, always that one section in every episode. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and they they start revealing these things. Mm-hmm. And oh, I I forgot what I was gonna say. Um <laughs> This happened so many times in this episode. Well, it's because it's what'll happen is Gary's Gary's talking, and this is this is absolutely like nothing bad at all, Gary. But you'll be saying something, I'm like, oh, that, and then you'll keep going, and I'm like, oh, that too, <laughs> and 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 also this, and then I forgot what the first one was because like I'm yeah, juggling three other questions at once. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's so much to this, and 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 all of it, like, you know, all of this this history, um. You know, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, you have like the the flood story. I mean, all this stuff is all like throughout all the the ancient histories. It's all the same story over and over again, basically. Yep. Right. Well, and oh, uh, one thing that a lot of people, I mean, if if they follow you, they'll they'll know this explanation. But uh, for the people who who are listening now who may not know, you do not subscribe to the theory that Nimrod equals Gilgamesh, correct? No. No, Nimrod is third generation, and Gilgamesh is sixth generation. Uh, Nimrod would equate more with Enver-Akar, um, third generation. And so uh, Gilgamesh and, you know, I think Nimrod would have intermarried with the Raphaim or Anunnaki giants that were um, there because he stayed in Mesopotamia. And uh, Gilgamesh would inherited Uruk, which is Erek in, in, in the Bible. And so Nimrod founded Uruk after the flood, probably renovated it, and was king of Uruk before. So it's part of that succession, but you get different bloodlines that are taking over Uruk um, in the time of, of, of Gilgamesh. And so Gilgamesh comes downstream. Like Sargon is, is another interesting one as well, right? Because he's, uh, mother is a changeling and this father, nobody knows where he comes from and it's not mentioned. It's just, uh, just not listed. And uh, he seems to be a giant as well that's going to be king of, uh, of Uruk. So yeah, you have, uh, you have um, a lot of confusion with that. Um, and I think most of the depictions that people are equating Nimrod with uh, Gilgamesh uh, is sort of akin to um, Smith and Sace who are equating Itzubar, which is Gilgamesh, uh, with, with Nimrod as well. So I think there's a lot of that that goes on. And, and I, I get it. It's just that from a chronological and genealogical basis it just doesn't quite fit to to, right. to conflate the two well and that that actually leads into i think one of the one of the major questions that uh, our friend grognak had too was regarding the chronology of the king lists of egypt and mesopotamia over the years it seems that they have been misinterpreted and conflated i mean due to maybe zechariah sitchin and other folks as well in the community i mean we know all of us here i think we can understand that archaeology over the past 300 years has been a completely butchered 
science. I hesitate to even call it science. Um, but as far as chronology goes, there have been major issues with trying to place certain identities and certain peoples in time periods, um, specifically when it goes to prehistory and post-flood history, because like Johnny said, the the flood is in all cultures. Yep. Um, And you you need to understand the events on both sides and not conflate them because many of the characters have the same names. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, right. That's name, definitely and, something that, that you can find. Yeah, it's strange how you know in different cultures they basically a lot of these people have the same names. Yeah, and the other thing that you know what happens with secular chronology is they don't account for the number of titles kings would have in different names. So uh, each of those, I mean. You can use up to, in, in, in cases of, of history, up to seven titles for one individual. So what happens is, is they can't seem to properly align those all of the different references with those names to you know, a specific individual. And they sometimes create additional kings in there and they create a longer chronology. And then they're trying to match that up with, well, what about names that are being used in... Canaan or names that are being used in Phoenicia and names that are being used in um, in uh, Sumeria and Mesopotamia and Syria. And they're trying to line all of those up. But then you get the same issues in those locations. They've got multiple names. And a lot of them were just kingship titles, right? So like Pharaoh is a title of a king. Like... Um, Hadad is a title of a king. Um, you have just so many of these different, a gag is another title. It's like the Caesar title, right? And so if they're not very, very careful, they're trying to match up names that they didn't match up properly to all one individual and then trying to match both of those up to another uh, set of kings in another culture. And then they're trying to do that in another culture and it just turns into a pretzel in terms of how they sort of get woven them into. And they, you almost need like one center to link in and, and match those up. And I, I find it, you know, even though we don't get enough information from the Bible, I find the Bible tends to match up better in linking all of those different sort of Kings and times. Yeah, it's like my my great-grandmother, she emigrated from Spain. Um, She had 10 family names. If I were to rattle off her name right now, um, (laughs) everyone would have to pause the show and listen to each one. Yeah. And uh, But but when we're talking about Egyptian rulers, we're talking about even even Israelite rulers, right? They had different names. Um, Yeah. Uh, Assyrian, you know, David Roll has been an incredible influence in the field of of Egyptology and chronology in the Near East. Um, uh, Jason from Archaics as well has done a really good job of of looking at these titles, these names, and really trying to understand like where these fit in other cultures, because you have to look at the meanings. You have to look at, if you're going to look at 10 titles, names, yep. um, kind of understanding where they fit. Yeah, and then even in some of their work, they'll start to explain 
um, how this name fits in with them. But then you get this big explanation as to how you know it fits in with them because it's, you know, and, and I think they're, they done a, they did a very good job, but it's not simple, right? It just isn't, uh, it's very, it's very difficult to, 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 to feel like you're on solid ground. And then you start multiplying that over generation after generation after generation. And it's, so I like to look at, at a lot of different individuals and see what they've done. And, and then I try and uh, say, okay, how can I, I connect that biblically? And so when I get in, I get into a little bit of uh, chronology of, 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 you know, the time of Sargon and Gilgamesh and the War of Giants and lead that into Hammurabi because, you know, just if you're just looking at Hammurabi and you don't understand that there's several different kings and different generations that are using that title and there's a few different transliterations of that same kingship title, you start to really sort of kind of get, get confused. So, Typically, you get two different datings of Hammurabi, and they're like 300 years apart, and you're going like, how does that happen? Well, it's because there's a flow to to how this how the civilizations unrolled and the different types of kings and things that were moving in and out that were ruling over it. You have to, you have to be very careful on how you make that. And I, and I do like the work that Roll did because I think he he did probably the best work that I've read on trying to to make sense of that. And then I, 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 in the in my latest book, I, I had a little bit, hopefully, a little bit more clarity to some of that. And I do like to quote Roll, but I don't quite always agree with him. But nobody ever disagrees. Every, nobody ever agrees with somebody one hundred percent, no matter what, because it's just so much that's out there, right? So. <laughs> it's impossible to agree with somebody one hundred percent of the time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but on it, I too honestly agree with somebody 100% yeah. of the time. Yes. Let me rephrase that. There's a lot of people who will kiss somebody's butt <laughs> and agree. Like, yeah, there's those. But no, to honestly to agree with somebody 100%, you have to you have to have points of disagreement. A little bit, you know. I mean, well, and that's that's the best that we can do, right? Yeah. Is is take from all of these sources as best we can and and fit things together and admit i'd say probably the most important part of this is admitting when we don't agree with a certain source yeah. and but say but be able to discern and take and and say look these things this person has done correctly they work they fit with whatever worldview we're going with you know it, it, whether it's biblical or not you know um and be able to push aside, but but not push them aside in, in such a um, a disingenuous way. Just because they don't agree, not call them a shill or or whatever, because <laughs> um, that's something we deal with a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I don't agree with you, so you're a shill. Yeah. yeah. Oh, everybody I don't like is a shill. Everybody. Yes. 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 Um, right. Well, we've dealt with that quite a bit. But uh, Johnny, what do you have? What do you mean? What do I, I did. Do you have any other questions? Or? Um, well, we, I mean, we've gone over so much stuff to go anywhere else. We'd probably start another hour long conversation at this point. <laughs> and we're getting, we're getting towards the end of the second hour. So, um, how about we, how about we start wrapping this up if that's all right with everybody? Yep. Uh, okay. Yes. Yeah, so Gary, tell everybody where they can find you. The best way to get a hold of me is through my website, the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's Genesis6, the number 6Conspiracy.com. And on that website, if you go over to the media page and you wanted to 
uh, contact me directly. There's a little line on there that says, uh, contact Gary Wayne for an interview. You click on that. That gives you my email uh, and it'll come right through to me. And that email number is genesis6conspiracy at gmail.com. Genesis 6 with the number 6 conspiracy at gmail.com. And uh, if you want some information or ask me a question, um, get hold of me. It might take me a month to get back to you, but I will get back to you if you're looking for a specific document, let's say on Putin or something like that. Name it by document. And if I've got it, I will send it to you. I do not charge for that. Um, and my website also has a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters of the first book, and it will be the same place where the sequel will be also marketed through. And if you wanted uh, to get a signed copy, you could link over to the Buy Now page, and that will give you three options on buying from the author, one for Canada, one for the U.S., and one for the rest of the world. And uh, just click on the appropriate page to get a signed copy. If you wanted to link over to uh, barnesandnoble.com, the Buy Now page has that icon for a link, or over to amazon.ca or amazon.com, and over to the Kindle uh, version if you wanted a digital version as well. So that's the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. If you're going to get a hold of me on Facebook, uh, probably the best way is through Messenger. All right. That was very thorough. Thank you. Mr. Gary Wayne, you're always, always a pleasure, man. I'm, I'm very glad to have you back. Um, and after your book comes out and we, we get a chance to go through it, we're going to have to have you on again. Terrific. Yes. What do you think, Reinhardt? Reinhardt? Uh-oh. Oh, sorry. I was on mute. Oh. <laughs> nope. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I can't wait for, for your next book. And I, I just thank you for, for the work that you do. And, um, and I, I appreciate the sourcing that you have because mm. that's something that a lot of people just, they don't go and look for. They don't want to search. But I, yep. I've seen over the years that your book has people looking further. So thank you. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think we need to get the information out there and they need to know where you get that information from. And the best thing about that is people can verify for themselves whether or not your uh, what you're saying is accurate or not so that's right we want to be credible bibliographies matter yep they do yes they do all right well thank you gary um we will talk to you again soon looking forward to the genesis 6 conspiracy part two is that what it's called no hold on did, did i said it wrong what is it again right genesis 6 conspiracy part two but the second part is the the subtitle is the long part what's the subtitle again <laughs> it's how understanding prehistory and Raphaim giants helps explain end time prophecy. Yes. That is like the opposite. Of, well, no, it's like a Philip K. Dick uh, novel. All of his novels are like 840. If you ever make a movie, it's just got to be called Gen 6. Cause then you yep. can do like the Philip K. Dick <laughs> thing where he's got like a nine mile long book title. And then the movie is <laughs> called Blade Runner. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Gary. We'll talk to you again soon, sir. Perfect. Thank you. All right. All oh, right. There he goes. There he goes. Gary cool. Wayne, everybody. Man, that was fun. That was a lot of information. Yeah, man. Like, <laughs> don't don't do that, Johnny. You got anything else? I'm I'm still kind of trying to process hour one. Right. It's like <laughs> it's like when you upload the show. When you upload the show to the RSS, like it uploads, then it's like processing. And it takes like 10 minutes and sometimes the processing takes a little longer <laughs> because your processor is like, 
Like it's really working hard. My processor was working pretty hard tonight. This is this was great, man. I actually look. I actually uh, have done a lot more reading. The first episode, um, I just listened a lot. I mean, we did. We just listened a lot this time too. But um, I actually knew what he was talking about a lot more this time than last time. <laughs> well, I'm glad this time. Like. I feel like we set a, a really good groundwork in what was kind of like the, the theme of season seven with like Tartaria hidden history and all that. Mm-hmm. And then we got to branch out and bring it into the modern world where, yeah, yeah we know more. Yeah. This was good, man. I like, I like having Gary Wayne on. He's, he's um, a lot more fun to talk to than, you know what I mean? That like, listen, I've, I've heard some of his shows. I don't know. People seem to be more relaxed on our show. Yeah, I think so. And I've I've seen some weird interviews yeah. Gary's done. Not not on Gary's part, but like on the actual person uh, conducting uh, the interview. Really? I dude, I watched one uh today that he did like six weeks ago, and it was a a Minecraft streamer. Oh boy. And I'm looking a at Minecraft it right now. streamer with the I'm, hell is I'm Gary Wayne looking, doing? I'm looking at it right now. This guy's name is Powder K Greg, and he on video is sitting here with like all these anime posters, Neon Genesis Evangelion, Samurai X and stuff behind him, like this entire anime collection. <laughs> and here's Gary talking about the giants in the pre-flood world. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. I don't know, but but yeah, it 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 seems like well, it's a recurring theme, Johnny, is we we're just comfy. Yeah, it's the comfy show. I, I, I think we're comfy with, with everybody. There you go. Well, speaking of comfy, we're going to have a comfy creepypasta for you at the end of this. Uh, we will see you guys Tuesday on the live stream on Pilled, DLive, and Odyssey, where we will be coming at you with the Nationalist Inquirer. And hopefully, FEMA Camp Band Leader has the new Nationalist Inquirer theme f- finished, I think. I think he sent me uh, he sent me two versions of it today. Which oh, nice. is not, well, he sent me two different songs. There wasn't two versions. Well, he sent me two different versions, not two versions of the same song. Sometimes you'll do that. You go like, do you like this one or this one? It's like you're doing the glasses thing, better A or better B, you know, better <laughs> one or two. Yeah. yeah no, uh, this was like, do you like this one or this one? It was like two completely different songs. I'm like, I, 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 I like them both. I like parts of both of them. I don't like this part of that one. It's, you know, so we'll see. If not, well, we'll, just, we'll just keep doing it the way it goes. But it's good that he's got you and you're so knowledgeable with music as well that you can kind of help tweak things. So, so knowledgeable. My vast music experience. <laughs> my massive studio known as my MacBook. I don't have I don't have a $70,000 music studio or, or 12 with the same guitar. But um, I have a MacBook. <laughs> and I have a MacBook and really good earbuds. So. And you really like playing guitar. And I really like music, and I'm really good. Like I, really, I actually do. I, it's strange, and I'm not. It's not a bragging thing, but I really do have a very good ear. It's weird. Like we'll be play, like, my wife will laugh. Like we'll be, we'll be watching something. I have the couch guitar out because you know, like I always have to be playing something, and I'll be playing along with the TV, like <laughs> whatever <laughs> you know, like the song that's going on in the movie. We don't watch TV, but like there'll be like there'll be like a movie. I don't like the kids, like the you know, the kids will be watching something, and I'll be playing along with it. Just because I can hear it, I pick it up. So yeah, that's cool. That's one thing that um, uh, there's a lot of musicians in my family. I have a few concert pianists um on my mom's side. A lot of church piano players, a few organists. Uh, everybody in my family had to take um had to take piano lessons 
for at least a year. Everybody cramming. Well, mu- music was one of the seven sacred sciences. So that's right. That's right. There you go. Yeah. You've chosen your field. That's right. Well, I'm going to go play some more guitar. Um, <laughs> and we'll see you guys Tuesday. Uh, stay tuned for Creepy Pasta. We'll see y'all later. Time travel makes you gay. The transformation into a death knight was quick and painful. The experience left a burning sensation as Calypso's bone turned to juniper coal and his hair burned away in flame. He could feel his flesh melting, yet he felt no real pain, no loss of his true corporeal being. Calypso removed his gauntlet from his hand and moved his fingers, now just bone, but strong and magically mobile, unlike the animation of a mere zombie. He picked up his mighty sword from the floor and knew at once that this forever bleeding blade, Grishnak, contained his very soul. A phylactery that was enacted as a soul-harvesting weapon, fit for a knight who would never stop, who would never lie down and die. He looked down at his dead king, a man who in life he had called his friend and brother. Long live the king. The difference between a paladin and a death knight is that the former fears death, while the latter embraces it. I once saw my code as honorable, to see the undead as those who must be cleansed to make way for the living. I now see the valor in undeath, A true conviction not bound by the limitations of the mortal coil. As my men once marched for me as knights of honor in life, they will now rise again to fulfill their duty in death. My legion takes up their cold, icy grip on their weapons once more and will march. Our conquest will continue. Fear and hunger are no longer obstacles. The stinging winds do not bite the flesh of my knights. The north will see an eclipse upon them as the growing shadow of my legion covers the realm and brings it under darkness. Calypso began his march in that instant, finding his recently slain knights in the courtyard. He hefted his blade into the sky and let out an otherworldly battle cry, supernaturally enhanced by his new form. Rise again, my dishonored brethren. By my sword you fell, and by my sword you will stand once more to find glory in death. At once, without limitation by mortal wounds, the men assembled themselves, going from lifeless paper dolls strewn about the grounds, laid waste by the now eternally bleeding sword Grishnak, 
He watched his mercilessly defeated knights come back from pulverized form to stand rank and file as his newly motivated legion. An army of undead knights rose before him. The blood seeping from Grishnak ran down the Death Knight's silvery gauntlet, arms, and chest. He looked as if he had waged a war with the world already, tarnished in red. A pool around his feet began to form, and Calypso stepped forward to stand before his newly adapted knights. His steps left bloody footprints in the snow as he paced before them, eyes burning as infernos under his helm. Together, we rise up from the ashes. We take a form as a new power in the north. Our presence will be sent like a rippling wave of dread over the land. The nations of men we once served will now serve us. The enemies we had that once towered over us in dominance will now become vexed and feeble in the face of you. The faces of the risen knights were stoic and lifeless, their eyes blackened marbles fixed with malice and determination. We begin our march against the unsuspecting inhabitants of Bryn Shander. There we will lay waste before spreading our shadow across the rest of Ten Towns. Those who come long after our campaign will see this as the beginning of a new age of darkness. Calypso began his march, undead legion in tow. Footfalls crushed the snow down underfoot, trailing the bloody wake of passage, led by their new king. 